Good evening. This is Cinema 60. You see, I'm really an actress. At the moment, there's nothing but... Uh, Delizana could like me to sign a contract. Yeah, <laughs> but contract is death for an artist, don't you think? Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. You know who's one of the great Hollywood stars that I've never thought a whole lot about until these past couple weeks? Me? Not you. No. Sophia Loren. The same person. <laughs> <laughs> I never had anything against her, but I just thought she was your typical Hollywood star. Fine. Did what she had to do, and it was easy to forget about her movies for the most part. Aww. It's also because I hadn't seen a lot of her Desica movies. But, you know, a lot of her Hollywood things like, you know, Houseboat and Desire Under the Elms, like, they're not great. She's fine. But after watching 20, <laughs> count them, 20 <laughs> movies of hers that she did in the 60s, I have a whole new appreciation for this lady. Good. I'm glad. I've always liked Sophia Loren. She's one of the few big Hollywood female stars who I've actually had a, a pretty decent appreciation for because she is both hot and charming and that's exactly how I like my women. <laughs> yeah, it's a good combination. I always kind of put her in the same category as like a, an Audrey Hepburn or something. And I'll tell you what, I like her a hell of a lot more than I like Audrey Hepburn. They're too different for me. I think they're they're way too different. They're very different, but if your main impression of Sophia Loren is having seen Arabesque many years ago and she's wearing those Audrey Hepburn glasses in one oh, scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's my main association, but uh, yeah, she's way better than that. She's so natural compared to Audrey. But I don't think we should get into too much analysis of Sophia just yet. I think we should go through every one of these movies and then at the end sort of uh, give our overall impressions of what she's all about. Yeah, this is going to be a strange episode because if, if you've listened to our previous episodes where we focus on one, one actor or actress specifically, we usually are picking... I mean, if we can get the seven movies in, you know, that seems to be kind of our, our max for one episode because we don't want to sit here for five hours, even though when we're recording, we totally do sit here for five hours. But... Um, we usually, I mean, like for Anna Karina, we were like, Anna Karina and Goddard, you know, like, that's it. Like, we don't want to deal with all the other shit because there's way too many movies. But for Sophia Loren, Bart insisted that we watched 20. Gotta do them all. <laughs> that we... You know, the whole Pokemon thing you're always talking yep, about. Gotta, gotta catch all the Sophias, which, I mean, was interesting. It was absolutely interesting. And, and be, we kind of divided and conquered this. So, sort of sadly for me, because... I feel like there were things that Bart watched that even though he was like, they're really not very good, I still kind of want to watch. So I might have to go back and just actually catch him all Pokemon style, but... Well, I'm going to listen to what you say about some of these things and then decide if I want to go back and watch them. But yeah, and then we'll, and we'll focus on the ones that we, that we liked or the ones that we think are very important to her career. And hopefully by the end of this, you'll at least have the same appreciation for her that we've discovered or Bart at least discovered. I've... I always liked her. I always thought she was good. If we start at the beginning, which I don't have much information about, uh, do you want, do you have any like early childhood stuff that you want to share about Sophia Loren? 
I know that's not her real name. Yeah, I think you mean Sofia Villani Ciccolone. <laughs> Born in 1934. She grew up near uh, Naples with only her mother. She had a sort of an absentee father who I think had another family and did not want to leave them. And Sophia only met her father three times in his life. And the last time was on his deathbed where she claimed she forgave him and, and had no ill will. But it definitely shaped the rest of her life and gave her a self-proclaimed uh, father complex. But uh, yeah, she grew up in extreme poverty. Her mother was uh, at one point herself an aspiring actress and then kind of got screwed. <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, Sophia ended up kind of inheriting, I think, that that desire because in interviews, she says that the only thing that she ever wanted was to be an actress. It wasn't that it was specifically a calling, but it was I mean, I would say in a way it, it clearly is a calling. And yet she never seems to talk about it as something she felt compelled to do as much as something that she did for survival because she thought that this was the only way to become somebody and to sort of prove her worth in, in a world that otherwise was not terribly kind, it seems. So I, she loved her mother. She had a good, you know, she 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 had good things. <laughs> she wasn't miserable. She's a Napolitano, just like me. I know that much. Are you? Yeah. Oh, there you go. I mean, not from Naples itself, but from outside Naples, which I think is, is true for Sophia as well. And in any movie where she's not playing some other nationality she's always she's never just italian she's always from naples you gotta represent yeah <laughs> yeah and, and so you know she was attractive always <laughs> in her autobiography she claims that she was called toothpick or something because she had skinny legs but she was in beauty pageants growing up as a teenager uh, until she then enrolled in the Centro Sperimentale di Cinematografia, this film school uh, in Italy. And she worked her way up through that to bit parts and eventually got one leading role in 1953's Aida. From there, she managed to meet up with De Sica, who cast her in the gold of Naples in 1954. And then that same year, she also starred in Too Bad She's Bad with Marcello Mastriani, which is a movie I would wholeheartedly recommend. It's really cute and charming. Yeah, that's a fun movie. 1954 seems to be the year that Sophia Loren really became the star that she is. Her relationship with De Sica, who, who directed The Gold of Naples, just went on and on for years. And we're going to see, as we progress in this episode, that a lot of her best roles are movies directed by De Sica. And... Uh, so I think think they did eight or so movies together, uh, depending on how you want to count cameos and, and anthology films. But uh, and then Marcello Mastriani, like she's her, you know, most famous and popular leading man. They were in thirteen or, or or so movies together. Yeah, over the span of twenty years too. Right. Well, no more than that because uh, Ready to Wear was uh, was in the nineties, right? Mm. And they, they uh, sort of reenact the, the famous scene from yesterday, today, and tomorrow in that movie. Right. Updated for age. Um, yeah. <laughs> Her English language debut was in 1957 in Boy on a Dolphin, a, uh, an Alan Ladd romance for uh, 20th Century Fox, which I think is mainly notable because she's a, I haven't seen it, but she's some kind of diver and she appears uh, in, in a wet top for a lot of the movie and, and, uh, but then she quickly moved on to a, a Hollywood contract with Paramount. 
the year after that, 58, Desire Under the Elms might have been the first Paramount movie she did. And so, like, well into the 60s, she's still, like, do, doing these Hollywood movies for Paramount. And uh, a few of the, the first ones we're going to talk about now are part of her Paramount contract. And they're sort of fluffy Hollywood movies that maybe aren't great movies, but they don't really do a disservice to her. She actually shines and. At least the ones I watched. You'll, you'll have to tell me about uh, the ones you watched. But her first movie in 1960, the first one to be released in 1960, was Heller in Pink Tights. <laughs> Directed by George Cukor, based on a Louis L'Amour novel, a novel that's loosely based on the life of... Uh, Ada Mencken, who is a theatrical star in the, in the Old West, you know, vaguely foreign, although it's debatable whether she was actually foreign or not. But Sophia Loren is playing Angela Rossini, who's very definitely an Italian who has made a, a name for herself and, uh, you know, is not a huge star, but the shows that she puts on in, in the company, in the Tom Healy company, you know, draw a lot of attention. There's uh, some real, uh, uh, you know, show-stopping bits where, like, her riding apparently nude on the on the back of a horse on the stage, like an actual horse they show, like, tied up running on a treadmill on the stage. The most interesting thing about this movie is just seeing how a theatrical troupe worked in the Old West. Uh, Anthony Quinn is the male lead, and she's sort of uh, with him, but still kind of a, a flirty uh, sort of person who, uh, you know, gets involved with this bad boy gunslinger uh, named Clint Mabry, played by Steve Forrest. And uh, it's a little bit unfortunate that they grafted this this sort of standard Western story onto this really sort of interesting portrait of, of a of an old west theatrical troupe but uh it's a neat looking movie i know q core was really it was important to him to to make it look not anything like other westerns and have it sort of look like a toulouse-lautrec painting or something huh. and and uh it's, it's not great but it's it's interesting i it's not it's not a bad watch i'm not highly recommending this film but i think sophie loren does a great job like she's got a real handle on the character the sort of you know, somewhat immoral, sort of looking for a, for a good time, sort of lady who sort of grows a conscience as the as the movie progresses. Yeah, not a bad one. Uh, slick, pretty, semi-western, worth checking out. But then you watched her next film. It started in Naples. Yeah, well, I didn't luck out so much with It Started in Naples, <laughs> directed by Melville Shavelson, who came from the world of Bob Hope and ended up as a director. This one is starring Clark Gable, who, yes, in 1960, starring Clark Gable, who then died later that year at the age of 59. So this was his last color movie, I guess. He is playing an American who comes to Napoli to settle the estate of his late brother who, unbeknownst to him, had basically an entire second family over in Italy that he never told anybody about, including his wife, who he was separated from but not divorced from. So fr fairly scandalous. And the, the young boy who is his son named, is a eight-year-old boy named Nando, who uh, legally he has to now take back to the States under his care, 
But the boy doesn't want to go because he's living with his Aunt Lucia, who's Sophia Loren. And she doesn't really want him to go either. They know each other, and he's a strange old American. And uh, so Lucia tries to impress how much she is fit to take care of this boy. But it all sort of unravels because, you know, Gable eventually learns that not only is she broke, but she's a nightclub dancer, singer, which is, you know, heavily implied a stripper (laughs) without the nudity. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, the whole thing is just basically Clark Gable trying to win his brother's son over in order to bring him back to the States and talk up to how great the States is and how better his life would be. And this little boy who's your typical kind of (laughs) image of of, uh, Naples, which I say as when I I lived in Italy briefly uh, as a teenager myself, I did an exchange thing, and I was living in just outside of Rome, and I remember the family telling me, like, you don't want to go to Naples. Like, they'll steal the, the necklace off of your neck if you go down there. Like, everyone was super down on Naples. <laughs> and I, you definitely... That was my experience in Italy, too. <laughs> it's like, don't go to the South at all. You don't want to go there. Oh, yeah. And everyone's super down on it. And then you go to the South and they're like, we're the best. And you're like, oh, I get it. So it, it's totally, uh, you know, the, the sort of the cliche of, of Naples when I say that. I mean, the, the Italian cliche of it. And so, you know, and he's sitting there conning people out of money. Basically, this little eight-year-old is pretty smooth. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this was meant to be comedy, but it's a complete dead fish of a movie. <laughs> uh, Gable is way too old and way too tired just to play this role without coming across as just like, he, he's just like the severe humorless creep to your point the only shining star in this is loren and she has way more chemistry with that eight-year-old nephew than she does with clark gable (laughs) there's actually like the only thing that made me laugh is when she's trying to you know put this boy in his place and he gives her a bunch of talk back and then they have like a sweet moment and then they end the whole scene screaming at each other and walking out of two different door kind of stuff it's cliche but it was genuinely cute and amusing So it thinks it's being charming and it's just weird. You know, he was 60 and she was 26 or something, or he was 59. So, I mean, that age difference is just creepy. And then, of course, they get together in the end, uh, even though it's this sort of weird long road of her not really being interested. But then he decides he's going to stay there. And, oh, gosh, well, they should all just stay in the same house kind of, you know, it's creepy. I didn't like it. I don't know. I guess the, the highlight of this movie really is uh, Sophia Loren singing on stage that uh, You Want to Be Americano song, which is like was a hit in the 50s, but they, they dug up for the 1960. <laughs> and then you watch The Millionaires. Another stink. <laughs> Well, The Millionaires, it was a little more intriguing, I would say, because I like Peter Sellers. <laughs> Even when he's doing racist caricatures. Yeah, unfortunately, the script. <laughs> this The Millionaires was directed by Anthony Asquith, and it's based on a George Bernard Shaw play. Yeah, I mean, again, Peter Sellers and Sophia Loren, two pretty solid comedians in their own right. I mean... Sellers being a genius, comedic genius, quite frankly, and and Loren just being 
someone who has great comedic timing and, and surprisingly whenever she's in a comedy i always find her to be the most engaging aspect of it especially when it's a stinker like this and, and even she outshines peter sellers in this because he's doing this unfortunate a poo from the simpsons accent i mean at least he doesn't brown up or anything but that's like i'm splitting hairs for something that's already just really cringeworthy and and awful and a bummer and it, it takes you out of it it ruins it because there's no reason for him to be indian except for that it's meant to be funny probably this one okay it's about epifania onisante di Pererga. she's meant to be a millionaires so that she has a crazy name her father dies and says that she gets all the money, but she can only marry a man if he can turn 500 pounds into 15,000 pounds within three months. And for kicks, I converted that on an inflation calculator, and that would be the equivalent of <laughs> 11,600 pounds turning into about 350,000 pounds. So not not doable. <laughs> um First, she marries uh, this sort of hot sports guy and, and fixes it so that she buys back the money so that she's sort of loopholing her way into this marriage. But of course, it never works out and the guy loses interest and she dumps him. And then she tries to kill herself by jumping into the Thames because she is just oh so heartbroken. And she gets rescued by one Dr. Ahmed El Kabir, which, uh, again, is played by Peter Sellers uh, in his normal skin color with a really obnoxious accent. And she becomes infatuated with him. And I will say at least the character beyond his accent, which is meant to be funny, the character is pretty straightforward. He's not a fool. He's actually the only one who isn't a fool in the whole movie. He's a straight man. So, I mean, it, it could have been worse, but it's still pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> Why cast Peter Sellers as a straight man? What's the point of that? That's the other thing. He's just... He's wasted here in, in so many ways. But so Loren becomes infatuated with him and he's only interested in work and, and long convoluted story short. It turns out his mother made him promise that he couldn't marry until he met a woman who could live off of 35 shillings and then earn her own wages for three months. And then the whole thing kind of dissolves into this bizarre Freudian exercise about mother and father complexes, yada, yada, yada. It is basically, in my opinion, the whole movie is an excuse to just get Sophia Wren in a wet dress again. That's a running theme for sure. Yeah, and I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I got I got hot blood like any other American man here, but like, I, it's just it's it's okay, but it's not like it doesn't hold up a whole film. I'm sorry, like she she's in a wet dress. She's in a like a leather skin tight outfit that seems very bondagey for no reason. I mean, this just, and the outfits aren't even that great. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I don't know. There, there's like, there's a couple of good lines in here. There's actually some, almost some solid kernels of interesting stuff about class satire. I mean, like it could have been pretty fun, actually. I think that the, the premise minus the racial shit is okay. But they just essentially go for the lowest hanging fruit consistently and then miscast sellers. And it's just a big nothing. It just doesn't go anywhere. Trying to turn uh, Shaw into mass entertainment, I guess. Like My Fair Lady or something. 
I mean, at least Loren, I would say that she, again, she's charming and she does a great job. She goes from being the sort of hysterical to conniving to then, you know, working hard. She could like, of course, she's in a pasta factory and and earns her her wages for three months to prove herself, that kind of stuff. Um, So, I mean, I can definitely see I can see a lot of promise for young Loren in this uh, movie, but it is mediocre. I'd say that the best bit of information about this movie is the fact that George Martin of Beatles fame produced a song called Goodness Gracious Me for this film that the producers rejected, but it was released anyhow, and it ended up being a massive hit. And it's super obnoxious and awful, and you should Google it. (laughs) Well, moving on to her fourth film of 1960 which uh, she, she actually had five, uh, the fifth one being her, her biggest and most important, we'll spend a little more time on, but her fourth film was called A Breath of Scandal. Another Paramount Hollywood type film. She plays an Austrian princess who, you know, loves to sort of play games and pretend she's not a princess and, and go and you know, shoot people with arrows for fun and, and seduce sexy American businessmen by falling off her horse, uh, quote unquote, accidentally. And, and then this is how she meets the really wooden John Gavin, who, who plays uh, American uh, Charlie Foster. And uh, she doesn't tell him that she's uh, she's actually Princess Olympia. She she gives some phony name, and they she fakes an injury and spends a night in some cottage that uh, that she says is not hers, but it's actually hers. And and uh, and they sort of fall in love for a night. He uh, you know accidentally roofies her, you know as as will happen in these sorts of movies. Um, but he doesn't take advantage. You'll you'll be happy to know. And, you know, the next day she runs away and, and he's, uh, you know, wants to find her again. And he's, he's actually uh, seeking out her, her father, Prince Philip, to, to invest in some, uh, some, some business proposition of his. And uh, he accidentally runs into Princess Olympia at the ball. And, and she's very embarrassed and wants him to go away and pretend he doesn't know her. And all sorts of comic and romantic things happen uh, as a result of that. Uh, her father is played by Marie Chevalier, so he gets to do his haw-haw thing a lot. And, uh, you know, it's charming. He even gets to sing the, uh, the, the title track and just a, uh, you know, this non-musical film. He, he just sort of bursts into song and, and sings a, a breath of scandal when he's off to meet his mistress who he just uh, has for show but doesn't actually sleep with her because, uh, you know, love is a real thing in this movie. And that's what Sophia Loren learns from John Gavin is, in, is that, uh, you know, in, in America we have our priorities and we believe in love and, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want you to become queen and i don't want to be your like guy on the side i, I need you to marry me and uh lame yeah. <laughs> sophia loren is actually quite charming in this and she does a good job of going back and forth between very playful uh you know anti-establishment uh princess olympia who does whatever she wants to being this like oh i, I know i have to like fill this role as princess so I'm going to uh, do what my parents say sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, it's not her fault that this movie is kind of a dud. It's not even, you know, if you're into princess romances, it's good enough. 
it's not exactly a Roman holiday clone, but it's a story of this princess who learns that the American way is way better than the uh, European aristocratic way, and you just have to, you know, fall in love with a hunky American, and, you know, and that's your life. And that's all you need to do as a woman. But Joan Gavin is certainly no Gregory Peck, although I'm far more charmed by Sophia Loren than Audrey Hepburn, as I've already stated in this episode. Do you just have it out for John Gavin because of OSS 117? I do. He's terrible in that. (laughs) And I have it out for Audrey Hepburn because of Two for the Road. And, you know, all those other movies she made. Except for Breakfast at Tiffany's, which I actually really like. But it's because she's really good at playing a phony, which is her role in that movie. Damn, you are so mean to her. (laughs) What? She's She's not very good. She's totally good. She's a real princess. Whereas Sophia Loren is always, you know, somewhat miscast as a princess or an aristocrat or, or a rich woman because she's so much better when she's playing a sort of down-to-earth Napolitano with no money and, and just her charms to get by on. Well, that's that was her big movie, right? Two Women. So her final film of 1960 was the one that won her an Oscar the first time a performance in a foreign film uh, resulted in an Oscar for for somebody. Uh, Two women, La Chochiara. Maybe you could help me with that. It's meant to be like women from a a specific countryside, basically. Well, in this movie, she's a widow living with her 13-year-old daughter. Should we talk about Ponty before we get into this? Oh, yeah. We haven't mentioned Carlo Ponty. Yeah, well, I'll let you get into the juicy details, but Carlo Ponty is, you know, sort of this major presence in Sophia Loren's life, sort of this Svengali who shaped her career and produced a whole bunch of her movies, 12 out of the 20 movies we're talking about today. She married him at one point, but uh, yeah, what, what, what can you tell us about Carlo Ponty? Yeah, I think it's important to sort of mention him early on here because Ponty is kind of the looming unspoken figure that's going to hover over this entire episode and their relationship was kind of scandalous to begin with not just because of the 22 year age difference between the two of them which is already a bit shocking but he was already married for one and in Italy you could not get divorced it was completely illegal and so they had to go to Mexico and get your cliched Mexican divorce and marriage, which was still illegal to the point that he had to go become French citizens with Lorraine and his first wife. All three of them had to become French citizens eventually so that they could legally get divorced and then remarry. But Ponty, when he met Lorraine, he was actually judging a beauty contest and he cast her in a small film role. And then five years later, he was divorcing his wife, uh, who he had two kids with. He's interesting because he's one of these mogul types and he made Loren as far as cementing her in Hollywood, but he didn't really manage to nab her any hit films outside of Italy that I see, which is weird to me. And their relationship was weird. I mean, Loren straight up, she loved him until the day he died, totally devoted to him. There's a famous story about her turning down Cary Grant, who had offered to marry her on the set of Houseboat, but right before she was about to get married to Ponty illegally. 
in her autobiography, she says that Grant would send her flowers all the time. And at one point, Ponty slapped her publicly across the face. And she said, quote, inside, I knew I had deserved it. And it was a gesture of love and all of this stuff. And she thought this was the confirmation she needed to know that she should marry Ponty instead of Cary Grant, which, I mean, I don't think her marriage to Cary Grant would have worked out either. But, you know, as it's your sort of typical, like, again, like Italian man kind of story, especially 1960s man. He hit me and it felt like a kiss kind of shit. She gets slapped in the face by every love interest <laughs> that she ends up with in pretty much every one of these movies that we watch. And I wonder if that was something that Ponty insisted on. Oh, geez, I hope. I mean, I was kind of thinking that in a way, I, I understand her marriage to Ponty because he was a very smart move for her as far as cementing her career. I'm not trying to say that she was just trying to climb the ladder so much as quite frankly, I mean, like women at the time, you had to make a strategic choice. And she loved him. She thought he was basically father, husband, lover, all of these things for her. That was her thing. She needed that. And she got it from him. And you know, they had two children, they remained married the whole time. But I'm also like, it probably wasn't too hard because she had a job where she got to kiss Marcella Mastriani for decades. <laughs> uh, and all these other leading men. I mean, like, it's, you know, it's not a bad deal. Yeah, I don't know. I, he's a weirdo because I, I can't put him in that sort of Colonel Parker, Hal Wallace bag as much as I sort of want to because he's been involved in so many outstanding movies. I mean, mainly Italian, but also French. I mean, like, he was involved in producing La Strada, Fellini's La Strada, Cleota from 5 to 7, Doctor Zavago. He produced a lot for our boy Antonioni. So he wasn't tone deaf. Godard, he did a lot of Godard. Yeah, but then the movies that he chose for Loren just seemed very bleh. <laughs> On one hand, she got to work with basically every leading man. <laughs> From Clark Gable to Marlon Brando, Paul Newman, we're going to talk about all of these, but... I don't know. It was weird. I, I don't really understand if it was on purpose or if it was just about getting her out there. And like a lot of stories from Sophia Loren's own recollection is that she would hear about who was in it or who wrote it or who was directing it. And she would take it without reading the script. So it could also very much be on her. <laughs> mm -hmm. But definitely his hands are all over this. But since this whole episode's meant to be about her, I feel like it's about as much as we really need to say about him. Well, I'm, I'm going to go in ahead and say that he produced her best movies, but he also produced some of her worst. So. <laughs> it's weird. It's really strange. Yeah. But he made her career. But two women. Well, I mean, there's a whole story behind this one. This is uh, directed by uh, Vittorio De Sica, written by uh, Cesare Zabatini, who is the, you know, De Sica's big screenwriter, wrote all the, all the neorealist classics for him, uh, based on an Alberto Moravia novel. And like I said, she won the Academy Award for this. So this was a, a big career changer. Like people started to take her seriously as an actress after this. But uh, originally the lead in this film was supposed to be played by Anna Magnani. And Lorena was supposed to be the daughter. Right. And she was 26 at the time. So it would have been a very different movie. Magnani, for whatever reason, had to bail. Couldn't do it. And She uh, didn't want to be the mother. <laughs> she didn't want to be Lorena's mother. It? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I she can didn't see think that. she was old enough, or she didn't want to be seen as old enough to be. Although it is, it's good casting because there is a lot of Mignani in Loren, like a lot of 
Lorenzo's it would have been amazing. Moments. Yeah, I know. It would have been so good. But then she got to Mac on Marlon Brando anyhow, so. Yeah, that's true. Which, you know, refer to our Tennessee Williams episode for that reference. <laughs> I don't think this movie would have been as hard-hitting with a 26-year-old daughter played by Sophia Loren. For those who don't know, um, we're going to have to spoil this one for you, but the, the, the big climactic moment uh, in this film involves a gang rape of Sophia Loren and her 13-year-old daughter by a bunch of Moroccan gourmet. It's based on you know this thing that actually happened in the you know after this battle in uh, Chachara, uh, Italy, sort of central Italy. Um, these Moroccan soldiers were sort of went around just every every Italian town just raping and murdering everybody. So this is sort of an inspired by that incident. Uh, Moravia's novel is based on personal experiences of his, but it's a pretty shocking movie, especially for 1960. But yeah, the fact that it's such a young woman who, who this happens to in this is really, so it's a little hard to take, honestly. It's pretty graphic for the time, too. But uh, anyway, Sophia Loren plays Chizira, who is a Roman shopkeeper who, uh, towards the end of World War II, when the Allies are bombing Rome to defeat the fascists, she decides to go back. She's a, a widow, and she takes her daughter to the small town where she came from, like in the middle of nowhere in, uh, in Chichara. And so they, uh, they take a train and then end up, you know, walking miles and miles to get to this like really out of the way place where they, they think they're going to be safe from both the fascist and the anti-fascist, uh, attacks. And they aren't really in their travels. They're already sort of being harassed by fascists and, and later on they encounter the German you know, the Nazis who ask for uh, water and food for, at, at their village and uh, you know end up just really taking advantage of them. I'm not a huge fan of this movie because it's one of these movies where it's just one bad thing after another happening to these people. I don't understand what the point of the movie is. Like I can sort of see if this is somebody's reminiscences of you know, something that they lived through, it sort of makes sense because it feels sort of episodic and not heavily plot-based, just sort of like these bad things were happening towards the end of the war in Italy and, and we want to we shock you with these things. You, you didn't care especially for this movie either, did you? No, <laughs> because it just has that, it's, it's manipulative flat out it, it as you said it sets everybody up to be miserable and then they become miserable and, and in that way it's just there's a level of predictability you don't have to go in knowing that a rape will be the climax of misery in this while still you know that's what's gonna happen I mean you don't know I mean the, again like the way that this is it gets to that I, I would say is arguably quite interesting uh but then after all of it happens, it kind of even dissolves further, in, in my opinion, into a movie that just further piles on the guilt instead of actually dealing with true fallout. It just feels very contrived. But the one thing I really liked about this movie was this sort of contrast between the John Paul Belmondo's character, who I thought made a surprisingly convincing Bible nerd. <laughs> <laughs> in this uh as someone who is well, he's is, not a bible nerd he's a he's a communist well he's very anti-fascist he, read he reads from yeah. the bible he loves the bible but yeah that's true he um he is anti-fascist and 
is openly so, and he's surrounded by all of these countryside shruggers <laughs> uh, who are being oppressed, and they don't care because, you know, well, you know, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, it, it was interesting because I feel like it, there was a, a strange parallel, I think, in general to just people shrugging through their own political demise and, you know, this this idea of indifference through great terror and, and great horror was, I think, a pretty interesting topic. And DeSica is definitely going for that to a degree, I, but he's very sympathetic to it. He's almost extremely gentle, <laughs> I would say, in chastising these these kind of simple country folk for, you know, being overwhelmed. They they all seem to be too overwhelmed to really deal with the philosophical horrors that they're dealing with because right now they can't even they got to figure out where they're getting their next meal from. So I mean that's you know that's an interesting point and and certainly worthwhile and in some ways it kind of takes the blame off of Italy for fascism while still not fully absolving them of it because they are passively engaging in it. And occasionally there's like one guy that's a loudmouth and really loves it. So this was very much a, a movie about, well, is the Italian citizen during World War II and the horrors that were done to them by either allied or enemy forces. What I resented though about that is then they bring in this rape scene that feels racist. <laughs> uh, whether or not it was based on truth, it uh, at no point do we hear anything about Moroccans that I remember. At no point do we see them. It just sort of, you know, of course they're they're leaving. Uh, the mother and daughter are leaving after they think ah everything's getting better. They go to a town and then they sleep in a church of all places, of course, and a bombed out church and. On this church, suddenly um, they close their eyes for what seems like a second, and she opens her eyes, and there's this man in the corner smiling at her from the shadows, and it's really creepy. It was, it's a well-done scene in that uh, it's harrowing without being leering. There's no nudity. Uh, it's creepy, and it's effective, but I almost felt like it would have been more effective to have americans or germans or even italians doing it if you're gonna have to if you have to do it yeah i i see that but this true life event was the sort of impetus for the whole film so i guess they had to include it i mean everyone's also in blackface so i <laughs> it's <laughs> certainly part of it but it just felt out of place you know what i mean like it just comes out of nowhere if we'd even seen some Moroccan soldiers at some point earlier in right. that scene, it, it might have seemed less like lightning from the blue. And then, of course, after this, the whole movie kind of dissolves in the last 20 minutes to this idea of like, oh, well, now she's ruined and everything's horrible. And, you know, her just piling the, the guilt on her child, which, yeah. again, happened. It's not like that's not made up. Uh, and that's it is what it is. But it's... Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I felt like at that point, maybe if they had spent more time, because the ch this child goes from being the most like innocent flower summer child to being like an immediate horror wannabe who is flirting with only with sin and stepping out with boys late at night. And it's like really bizarre <laughs> for them to cram into the last 10 minutes of a movie like if this had happened more in the in the middle, if they had focused way more on this as being a traumatic event that everyone now has to deal with the fallout of, I actually would have, I think, 
been completely okay with it. But as it is, it felt like a punctuation more than it felt like any sort of real meditation on the horrors of sexual violence and war crimes. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an interesting theme running through where that's about, like, when you're little, you trust your parents to make the right decision. And and we see Rosetta sort of, uh, you know, gradually realizing that her mother is not making the right decisions, you know, through no fault of her own. Shazira doesn't seem like an idiot for, for, you know, taking her daughter into the middle of nowhere. It seems like a smart move, and it seems like when they leave, it's, you know, at the, at the right time. But her daughter's blind trust in her making the right decision is just sort of little by little uh, ground away until, uh, you know, this this horrible scene in the church. And uh, and so that's you've also got this sort of loss of innocence theme that's, you know, fairly interesting if it had been, like, sort of consistently carried through the movie, where it's, like, parents will, will always try and protect the innocence of their children, you know, for as long as possible, but children grow older, they can't be innocent forever. And it's, you know, this, it's a sort of loss of innocence story and in that, uh, you know, there, there is some sort of resolution where Sophia Loren is, is able to find her uh, child's lost innocence for, for a moment at the end. See, I kind of took it's... their story to be just a mirror of what was happening on the countryside and this sort of idea that political ignorance isn't a shield from the world and you're only as strong as the society around you allows you to be and and even if you're not the the supporter of fascism it's not going to help you if when it inevitably comes to your doorstep and ruins your life so i feel like this is kind of what annoyed me maybe about this rape scene is that it felt more like an, a pain being inflicted on loren than it did really dealing with what was happening with the girl because now Loren is sitting there weeping about her innocence is gone. Like I'm ruined. She's ruined. Like thrown in the throw in the trash, <laughs> which you could have had to a degree. But she kind of reacts like something was taken from her personally, which is to your point about you know trying to to protect your children and their innocence. But it felt like this parallel about you know you knew that that you should be this is something you should be fighting but you were too focused on yourself and your selfish pursuits and it's not a bad thing like to seek is not pointing a finger of blame but he's also like eh, this is what happens <laughs> it felt flippant i guess maybe <laughs> yeah i mean i i would have to imagine that the moravia novel that it's based on deals with all of these issues and has the time to explore them all whereas you know squeezing them all into this under two hour film is, uh, you know, maybe, uh, Zabatini wasn't totally successful there, especially since the, this movie is at its best in the same spots where all of these DeSica movies are at their best when it's just dealing with, you know, the people that he, he's such a populist. Like when you're spending time with these huge crowds of undereducated, impoverished people, these movies are at their best, just showing you this world and these people who, who populate it. You know, just these all these little character actors that he's he's just you know filling the screen with all the time. You know, maybe he wasn't the right director. I mean, clearly he was the right director because this movie got tons of attention, was beloved by critics, and you know it was it was the big you know it was the movie that made Lorenz's career. But it doesn't feel like the success that it once was seen as. Uh, you know, viewing it from. 2020. As you said before, Loren is at her best when she's playing these sort of blue collar, scrappy characters. And 
even without her trying to crack jokes or put on her usual charm, she's absolutely the heart and soul of this entire film. She's the only character that you really get a full picture of. She's painted in shades of gray, which I think is which is the most intriguing part of this entire movie. She's one of the few characters that doesn't feel like a caricature. I can understand why she was praised, her specifically, whereas I think the movie is maybe not as good as I'd want it to be, but it's, it's good. It's worth watching. And one big problem I have to mention is that she is gorgeous from beginning to end of this movie. Like, no <laughs> yeah. matter what tragedy befalls her, like she maybe will get a you know one little smudge of dirt on her cheek, but otherwise her makeup and hair is perfect the whole movie. And it is not the kind of movie where you should give your star this, that kind of star treatment. This is a gritty, rough, shocking movie, and you should you know, allow your star to look like hell in it, and she never does. And later in the, you know, we'll talk about other movies where she definitely allows herself to look terrible, but this this movie would have really benefited from a little less makeup on Sophia, maybe. See, but she has this very, like, nude makeup on this. She doesn't have, like, the mask. She has, like, some eyeliner, which I think is kind of the tell for sure. But funny uh, enough in Sophia Loren's career in general, there's like the Sophia with no makeup in a, and like a really messed up wig <laughs> that like <laughs> continually happens over and over again when she's doing a serious role. And I kind of love it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm on the fence almost because I feel like she's just naturally beautiful. So it's like one of those like, I just can't imagine someone like this would, would be in poverty for so long because she's too good looking. <laughs> yeah. That's also a, a theme for a lot of these movies that she always banks on her looks and it you know, works because it's Sophia Loren, but it's sort of a little bit too common of a theme in all of these movies that we watch, I think. And it undercuts her because otherwise she's killer. I want to say like, you, yeah. you don't have to look at her to enjoy her, but like that's part of the enjoyment. <laughs> yeah. Well, and part of what's great about her is she has, you know, no shame about her body at all. She she uses it. She she uses everything she's got in, uh, you know, in every scene. There's no there's no modesty whatsoever. And and she you know, she knows the effect that uh, that that her looks and her body are having on on people, on the audience, and the the characters in her movies. And she's so natural about it that it, it it's you can't really hold it against her and you, she doesn't feel exploited but but maybe we should save that point for some of these later movies where she is actually playing a prostitute because pretty much the rest of these movies with a couple of exceptions she's basically a, a prostitute <laughs> well not an el cid she is a very pure and righteous christian woman that's true which is, of course, our next movie, El Cid from 1961. Directed by Anthony Mann. This movie... I don't even know what it's about. I had a very hard time paying attention to this movie in part because I just hate Charlton Heston on like a visceral level that when I, I just have a hard time looking at him and listening to him. 
It was difficult watching Sophia Loren put her lips on his lips repeatedly. Such a lizard. <laughs> What's that line in Harold and Maud? Your young, supple flesh. <laughs> he's just so creepy. And he's such a stiff actor. He's so leathery. And I feel like the last five minutes of this movie is how he acted throughout the entire movie. <laughs> Which, uh, spoiler, he's dead on a horse. So El Cid is a legendary 11th century hero of Spain. And this is like the story of Christians versus Muslims in Spain. And the one knight who gives his life to unity instead of ego. Basically, El Cid, in a nutshell, this is a very like convoluted movie about corrupt princes and warlords and religious clashes and righteous men and vindictive vengeful women it's like there's so much happening in this movie and it's an epic if you didn't already figure that out this is like one of these massive intermission in the middle epics sweeping score and three plus hours long yeah and it looks i will say to man's credit this movie looks pretty awesome (laughs) yeah all of it is shot on location half the time and when even when it's in a, a sound studio with these sort of grandiose painted ceilings or backgrounds the way that he shoots it is really well done he makes these things look really real and i was mostly impressed by the second half of this movie well i guess i should finish the plot <laughs> <laughs> basically elsid he is riding around uh there's some moorish attacking forces on, on a town he captures he wins the battle he captures and rounds them all up and then instead of killing them needlessly he lets them go which of course gets him into hot water with his king who tells him you know hey man that's treason somewhere in there he kills the father of his loving wife who's played by loren i think because the father challenges his father to a duel and el Cid doesn't want to see his father get hurt so he fights Loren's father and then he kills him by mistake she finds out she goes from essentially plucking the petals off of a daisy being so in love with this wonderful man and then suddenly she hates him understandably for having killed her father and ends up locking her so they get married because they're meant to get married but they don't consummate their marriage and she goes to a convent instead and she's like screw this guy that's how she avenges her father by not sleeping with his murderer even though they're married that's solid vengeance. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and then the king dies and the prince takes over. He looked to me like Peter Cook. I had to do a double take. Peter Cook in like Spock makeup. Alfonso? John Fraser. Yeah, oh. Alfonso. And he's, of course, this like corrupt little slime weasel. and Incestuous. He and his sister are clearly spending their nights together. Genevieve Page is Princess Uraka is... Uh... Right from the get-go, I'm, I'm like, oh, she's got some weird, like, inbred thing going on. She's so loopy. And then it makes some very clear suggestions that she and her brother are, are an item. Well, El Cid gets banned <laughs> from the kingdom. But he, being the righteous and wonderful man that he is in a perfect night, continues the fight, the good fight for his king, who he knows is corrupt. But he goes along and essentially conquers everyone in Spain under the name of the king and fights for unity and befriends these sort of attacking forces and tries to get everyone together under one Spain. And that's it. That's uh, the whole thing. It ends 
as I mentioned with him dead on a horse, which it's not even a spoiler because it's so stupid. <laughs> but it's true. It's 100% true. Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> There's a lot of Christ imagery in this movie, like right from the get-go. At Spain. When, uh, <laughs> when El Cid, when Don Rodrigo Diaz uh, de Vivar is helping some priest whose church has just been burned to move this cross that managed to not get burned. He's got it over his shoulder, just like Christ. And it just, you know, continues from there because he's this, you know, perfect, like always noble, never caring about his own glory. He makes war in order to, for there to be peace amongst all people in Spain. And what I really liked about this movie, well, besides the fact that this was an important historical figure that I knew nothing about, and I thought that the story was pretty interesting. I really liked how it didn't have this attitude like all Muslims are bad. Like there's, you know, there are the extremists who are the bad ones. And then there are the Moors in Spain who can you know, be our friends. We, we can get along with them. And it's a lesson that people are still struggling with that just because you, uh, you follow Muhammad doesn't mean that you're all evil, violent warlords who want to conquer everybody and, and kill everyone who's not Muslim. And, I mean, of course, it's the, the Muslims from Africa who are the evil ones and, and the, the Spanish Moors who are the good Muslims and the African Muslims all wear black just so there's no question, like, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. But, you know, for a movie of the of this period, 1961, it, it seems a little open-minded. Like, it, it's... I appreciated that that distinction was willing to be made in, in a movie like this. Uh... <laughs> I mean, I would thank the 1200s for that more than the 60s. I mean, for me, I'm sounding real down on this just because I hate Heston, but I actually really like this movie <laughs> because I found the second half to be crazy engaging. I just hated the pacing of this movie. Now, granted, I also think that to watch an epic film like this, you have to, number one, be in the mood, and number two, you have to really focus on it or, or ideally be in a theater or be in some kind of dark room where you're just like really getting into the spirit of it because it's really tough otherwise, which is my mistake. Like, I I don't know. Life's been weird right now. But the second half of this movie, which is only an hour long in comparison to the first two hours of this movie, which is a lot about Charlton Heston's personal drama, the second half of this movie is completely battle scenes it's all war yeah. and it is awesome with some cool camera work it too is... there's a lot of like going under carts and and you know a lot of crazy you are there type camera work it's amazing it looks so good and it's like all on a beach somewhere <laughs> valencia that's the city that el cid lays siege to so that they can't help the african muslims who are attacking and Pretty much the whole second half takes place on that Valencia beach, and it's it's pretty amazing. The crowd okay. scenes in this are fantastic. I mean, like, the sheer yes. amount of people that they got to do this and then to all ride on horses. This is the kind of shit that CGI is recreating, and it just never looks as good. It never looks as good. Mm. CGI will really help bring out the, the that kind of brutal violence of when they when the two crowds finally meet and clash versus in this movie when it's so amazing to watch these horses like hundreds and hundreds of horses 
riding up to a battle with people with like you know swords raised it looks amazing and then this having this camera following on a you know car mounted camera so it's it's rushing just ahead of these horses which you see the tire tracks <laughs> on the beach in one point it looks wonderful it looks absolutely fantastic man did an amazing job with this but then the second that these crowds meet you can tell it's just hundreds of people kind of waving around like noodle swords. <laughs> like there's really nothing happening. It's a I little was deflated. I, I, I believed it. I was, <laughs> I cared about the outcome. Oh, I, I cared about it. the outcome. That's the thing though. It gets you so pumped for it that if you really pay attention to what's happening, you're like, uh. but like only if you're looking for it, will you see it because it, it manages to build up the momentum so well. And like with CGI, you can get those sort of like close-ups in the middle of a battle and you can show someone get their head knocked off or whatever. But like for this, it's just so much more impressive to see these crowd shots charging. Like that to me was like all I needed to see. Well, this seems like a really good time to bring up the whole runaway production, the uh, which was part of what was destroying Hollywood in the 60s. You know, people are demanding these spectacles if they were going to leave their house and not just sit in front of their TV. So Hollywood would, uh, you know, send their crews overseas because it was a whole lot cheaper to get hundreds and hundreds of extras. And all the professional uh, crew is, is, you know, a lot cheaper in Europe. And it's just, uh, you know, a lot of the professionals in Hollywood were not getting enough work because a lot of these big productions were being shot overseas. And... Uh, and Sophia Loren, in a way, is sort of the queen of the runaway production. She was the biggest of the international stars. And so she's, even when she's making Hollywood movies, they're usually shot overseas. You know, it, it's, you know, it started in Naples, was shot in, in Naples, and Breath of Scandal was shot in Vienna. And she's a big Hollywood star at this point, but she's also not shooting her movies in America. She's in a lot of these overseas runaway productions so these you know these spectacles got people to go to the movies but it also was nails in the in the coffin of the hollywood studio system where all these professional filmmaking artisans were were not getting enough work unfortunately in, in el cid sophia loren despite demanding that her role get beefed up and that they bring in extra writers to write more romantic scenes between her and Charlton Heston. She still kind of gets screwed over a bit in this movie. Like it, you know, plot wise, her character is important, but I mean, you were saying before that she was pulling petals off flowers at the beginning. He loves me. He loves me not sort of thing. Um, sort of ridiculously sappy romance. And then all of a sudden she hates this guy and, and doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And then, like it, you know, at the halfway mark, there's you know things happen, and 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 she's able to 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 find her love for him again, and she's fine. She does what she has to do, but anybody really could have played this role. It didn't. She didn't bring anything in particular to her role as Shamina in El Cid, which is unfortunate and also sort of typical of what happened to a whole lot of Hollywood stars in in the '60s, female stars. Yeah, she's really flat in this, unfortunately. And I think she does the best with what she has. In some ways, her love at the beginning is definitely changed than her love at the end. So I think there's something to be said for that. But at the end, it, 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 basically, what it comes down to is that despite how beautiful she is, she isn't exciting when she just stands around being beautiful. Like Monica Vitti can do that and she can get that across because she has just so much happening in her eyes. 
But Lorenz Spark for me lies in her her charm and her playfulness, or when she's really digging deep and picking up that kind of tough exterior hiding a painful background kind of blue collar <laughs> role. You know, like I think the only moment she has in this movie that I was impressed with her is when she is at El Cid's deathbed and he says he doesn't want to be saved by the doctor or doesn't want to there's like an arrow literally sticking out of him and he says leave the arrow in and she's the one who gives the order to not remove the arrow and she's intimidating when she does that and I thought she did a good job with that but she doesn't have enough to work with here and the character is a plot device it's not really a character she gets more juicy scenes in the, in the next film that I watch, which was Madame Saint-Gene, uh, or just Madame as it was released in the States. This is a French language production, but like a lot of these international productions, they're like Italian, French, Spanish co-productions, and they're they're shot in various countries. This is a French director, Christian Jacques, based on a classic French play, which was also adapted into an opera. But this is the one movie of the 20 that we watch, I think, where uh, she's actually dubbed by someone else. Oh, really? Yeah, she's dubbed in French in this movie, and uh, she's still a very lively presence in it. It's not a great movie. It's set during the, the French Revolution, sort of set in, in various periods of the French Revolution from the beginning to the end to the Napoleonic Wars. But uh, you know, at the beginning, she's a, a, a just a laundress and uh, the Sergeant Lefebvre is, uh, wants to put a cannon in her courtyard of, of her laundry shop. So he's got a good, good shot at Louis' army and uh, and they sort of fall in love there. And Lefebvre is, is played by Robert Hussein, who's for Cinema 60 followers, you, you would know him as two different villains in the OSS Sondisette series. And he's he's kind of a non-entity in this. He's there's just no romantic spark between Sophia Loren and Robert Hussein in this at all, and that's a big part of the problem because this is a sort of you know wacky romantic comedy set during the French Revolution and uh, a lot of slapstick and pratfalls, but it keeps coming back to this like ongoing love between these these two people, and and her character is actually based on an actual historical figure, Catherine Oubcher. Um, who was actually, you know, Madame Saint-Jean was her nickname, which means, like, the lady without embarrassment or something. And Sophia Loren certainly plays her with no embarrassment in this movie because most of, at least the first half of it, she uh, she's in a peasant dress where, you know, where the, the front of it is, is just soaking wet because she's a laundress and, <laughs> and uh, you know, leaves very little to the imagination. So, uh, hey, when that happens, <laughs> there's several cameras next to you. The first half of this movie is wartime pratfalls and Sophia Loren in a wet dress. Um, it actually picks up in the second half when uh, when she's actually married to Lefebvre, who's been uh, promoted because he, he sort of accidentally defeats the king's army in, in, in the battle because he's chasing after her because he thinks she's cheating on him, which she is. So he gets promoted, and years later, in Napoleon's court during the Napoleonic Wars, and uh, Napoleon wants to make Lefebvre the Duke of Danzig, you know, because he's splitting up this this kingdom that that he's conquered. And Sophia Loren is invited to his court, and she just, you know, not intentionally, but uh, insults the Napoleon's daughters and son. Is clearly like out of place in in this uh, aristocratic court. 
and she, you know she points out that everybody there is actually you know they they once were you know laborers just like her so why 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 should she be embarrassed and uh, so she she sort of disgraces Lefebvre so that's one really good scene that Lorraine has you despite being dubbed into French she's just really fun like making a spectacle of herself at this ball and insulting Napoleon's family um, and then later there's a scene where she has to sort of Napoleon says that uh, oh Lefebvre you have to divorce Catherine because she's she's an embarrassment if you want to be Duke of Danzig then you have to marry this other person and she she goes to Napoleon like sneaks into his office and says you remember me I'm the laundress that you used to know from the beginning of this movie and and uh, you know she she has another scene where she charms Napoleon and they become good pals and Lefebvre doesn't have to divorce her and it's uh you know, a few good scenes where Lorraine really gets to shine, and uh, but otherwise, it's this this movie's kind of a dud. I mean, I could see how a French audience might enjoy it uh, a bit more than an American audience. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure it ever got much of a of a release in this country. It's very French. Not a whole lot to see here. So so moving on to Boccaccio seventy. <laughs> Uh, I know you've seen, but um, I watched it for this episode. It's one of these uh, anthology movies that were so popular um, in the 60s, especially uh, in the Italian film industry, where you get four different directors directing 45-minute uh, short films that are collected together into a single film. In this case, Mario Monicelli, Federico Fellini, uh, Lucino Visconti, and uh, Vittorio De Sica are the, the four directors, and they each have a, a segment here. Sophia Loren is in the last one, the De Sica, uh, th called uh, The Raffle. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, we can't talk about the Fellini one, which is easily the best one in this entire thing. I disagree, actually. Really? I, I thought that it went on for a bit too long. I mean, all of these, mo the all of these segments are, are kind of... The sort of running theme is that the commodification of a, of a woman's body and they all sort of deal with them in, in, in various ways. I actually thought the first one, the Monticelli, which was uh, stylistically the least interesting, was just sort of a small, interesting movie about uh, you know a young couple where the young woman has to hide her marriage because she'll lose her job because her company will only hire unmarried women because they don't want her to have to pay for maternity leave or something. But it's just a quiet, like, you know, kind of subtle how it was, you know, about the commodification of, of women. Um, but the rest are, are very, like, in your face about how in any relationship with a man, a woman is, is a prostitute of some sort. But Sophia Loren is the star of the De Sica segment, also written by Cesare Zavattini. She's a runs a, a carnival stand where uh, people shoot balloons and, and win prizes. And uh, she travels in this carnival circuit with this couple, and they're expecting a baby. And they the, the husband sells tickets, 70 tickets, to men who um, and whoever wins the lottery gets to spend the night with Zoe, uh, played by Sophia Loren. And, uh, and so you get to meet this assortment of men of the town who... Uh, are really uh, excited about this opportunity to spend the night with uh, with Zoe, and uh, at the same time, she's attracted to this other uh, guy at the carnival who's the bull wrangler or something, and, and so she has to end her date with this guy so that she can spend the night with this one you know, really uh, unassuming guy who happened to win the lottery, and, and uh, 
he's, he's just this sort of clergyman type who rings the bell at the church and, and uh, you know, just wants to prove himself as a, as a man to all the people around town who make fun of him. And uh, he wins the lottery to spend the night with her. And he goes to her trailer. And this, this other guy that, that Zoe's interested in sees him go in. And just another case of her... Um, so she gets to be really charming and, and use her body in, in very seductive ways. And, and she gets to sing some songs and dance around a bit. And, and you know, she's very charming in it. But it, it, in the end, she's just, you know, this is one of her prostitute roles where she's, she's for sale to the highest bidder. And uh, she gets slapped by the bull wrangler. She ends up giving up all her money to this nebbish and uh, just so she's not embarrassed uh, in front of her true love or whatever and it's actually one of the weaker episodes in this anthology film but Lorenz sells it and actually seeing this community of men and then how they interact with each other is you know to seek at his best but it's just you know kind of a minor thing probably a lot of Fellini fans will, will end up checking out Boccaccio 70 just because the uh, his segment in there is pretty famous but then you watch The Condemned of Altona from the same year 1962 Right, which is another DeSica movie, but really, really, really weird for DeSica. This is unlike anything he's done that I've seen, at least. And I feel like I've seen quite a bit of his movies. I don't even know how to... I'm trying to sum this up because I'm the only one to watch this. And I really want Bart to watch this. <laughs> Lorraine is good in this, but she's also not really the star of it. This is It's such a weird, complex movie. I'm going to try my best here. It is basically a simplified version of Sartre's play of the same name. And so you have Robert Wagner as Werner and Joanna is Sophia Loren and they're a married couple. And they are called to the mansion of Werner's father, Albrecht von Gerlach, who is uh, played by Frederick March. And he is a shipbuilding magnate who only has uh, six months to live and he's trying to settle his estate. And the father needs an heir and... He actually would rather have his older son, Franz, be it, who's played by uh, Maximilian Schell. But the thing about Franz is that he is actually officially declared MIA after the war. And this, by the way, is all taking place just after World War II. But the truth about it is that he spent the last 15 years going nuts in self-imposed isolation in his father's attic of this mansion. And he is living off of champagne and oysters and he has been building his case of defense for the 20th century Germany against the judge and jury of 30th century crabs, straight up future crabs. And his only outside interaction is with his sister, Lenny, who's played by Francois Provost, who is definitely, there's definitely something incestuous happening with them. And the other thing that she does besides clearly sex is that she reports to him daily about the news that he would like to hear, which is this idea that since Hitler's defeat, Germany has been crumbling and everything's ruined and he's better off locked in this windowless attic where he's been for the last 15 years and he doesn't want to speak to anyone else. I haven't even gotten into the, the point of this movie yet. I'm telling this this whole thing was so wild. Uh, but so Werner and, and uh, Joanna have, uh, they've rejected Nazism of their childhoods. And uh, meanwhile, the father Albrecht is, is more sympathetic because having profited greatly off of the war and, and Germany's defeat, 
their name, Gerlach name, has now basically propped up the entirety of Hamburg as a shipbuilding capital of the world. Franz, meanwhile, is uh, fervishly obsessed with his guilt and he is a fervent believer in his country and he's also grappling with what he did during the war in order to prop up both all of these things under one roof of his mind. Joanna is trying to break through to Franz in part because she would much rather have him take over than her husband, Werner, who doesn't really want it. And so at first she's just trying to get Werner off the hook by trying to get Franz to step up to the plate. But then she quickly starts to kind of get her own morality disrupted by Franz's emotional craziness and complexity. And it gets even weirder from there. <laughs> I had to go back and look over. I have not read this play or seen this play, the Sartre play. I know a bit about Sartre. I, uh, this made me want to read way more Sartre than I have in the past uh, and really focus on it because I found this completely fascinating and really interesting and completely unlike anything that Sophia Loren has done even though her character is unfortunately really more of a cipher for the things around her than she is, I guess, you know, one of these main philosophical pillars, even though she's important, but she's also kind of like merged with Werner, except that the movie is even doing something that the play doesn't do. And there's a lot of these changes, but I mean, it's like, I, it's not even worth me going into and describing because it would take me way too long to get into this and way too long to get into the philosophy of it and to really dissect what this whole thing was about and it's a challenging movie but I 100% would recommend that you watch it if you can find it really interesting for DeSica and for nothing else the fact that he shoots it so unlike how he shoots anything else to me it looked like Bergman filtered through German expressionism with like dashes of neorealism like the camera whips around this. There's all of these weird scrawls on the wall, these these drawings. There's a, a whole Breck play in the middle that's staged and you get to watch half of it. I mean, like it's it's a really wild movie. And then it has this really kind of near realist ending that's really depressing. <laughs> Sartre depressing? No. <laughs> exactly. So I don't know. This one was amazing. And I almost feel a little bad that we're not discussing it in this episode, but it's also just like such a weird outlier that I feel like it, we have, we're going to have to have an existentialist episode or something to really talk about. I'm dying to see it. So I'm game for that. Well, the next movie on the list here is one that you got to see that I was kind of curious about. Yeah. Same year, 1962, her third film of the year called five miles to midnight directed by Anatole Litvak. kind of a big did a lot of big hollywood movies a little kind of second tier but he did like the snake pit and you know, sorry wrong number and that's actually not a bad way to sum up this movie sort of snake pit meets sorry wrong number uh sophia loren plays lisa she's the uh napolitano bride of anthony perkins uh robert robert macklin and they're living in paris they don't have a great relationship He's flying to Morocco, and uh, the plane crashes, but he survives, but he fakes his own death. And he comes back to Paris uh, after Lisa thinks he's died, 
and says, oh, you, you have to collect the insurance. I took out an insurance policy, so let's live off that. And, of course, she doesn't want him anymore because he's just kind of a weaselly, pushy guy. That, and she's got, you know, she's got some stuff on the side. She's got a French boyfriend that he doesn't know about and is, you know, always sort of suspects and is just, like, sort of fiercely jealous of, of anybody who might be uh, spending time with his wife. It's sort of an oddball thriller that is not very well liked. And uh, people say that both Perkins and Loren are miscast in this, but I think they're both great. Like Perkins is, he's so good as this sort of weak bastard who is like still sort of sympathetic. Like you, a lot of the movie you spend, he's just inside their apartment in Paris, like, you know, having to hide when anybody comes to the door and she, and she has to pretend like he's, not there and and um you somehow despite what a what a jerk he is you still sort of are, are worried for him that he's going to get discovered and and uh i i don't feel like there's anybody but anthony perkins that could have gotten away with that really and loren she's really just uh the sort of unhappy wife for the entire movie and it's not playing to her strengths or what people think of as loren's strengths but I actually think she does a great job. She she shows a lot of depth and and shows some some of her range. She uh she she gets to go a little mad at one point in this movie and uh and she's she's believable. Like when she just when she starts to lose it a bit in this movie, it's uh it's she she sells it. The weakest part is Gig Young who plays this this sort of, you know, American in Paris who who she, she takes up with a little bit after her husband quote unquote dies and uh he's supposed to be the good guy but he's just he sort of stalks her and is, is so much less likable than anthony perkins in a way but you're also supposed to see gig young as, as the hero but i also sort of understand why this isn't a very well liked movie it's it's sort of a thriller where nothing all that thrilling happens you're sort of worried that the jerky husband that you don't want Sophia Loren to be with anymore is is going to get discovered is is actually still alive but it just I, I think I've I've discovered that I'm a big fan of this genre like only recently have I discovered that I really like the thriller that is actually a far-fetched wish fulfillment fantasy for the protagonist and and this whole movie sort of plays out like Sophia Loren's like guilty fantasy about not wanting to be with her husband anymore and you know some sort of like crazy plan that where he could you know doesn't have to be around anymore and just it's it's a uh, you know plot wise it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but it is sort of just just feverish stylish like noir like late late noir with great jazz score and um you know, some other movies I've watched recently like the Chase from 1946 with Robert Cummings or No Man of Her Own with Barbara Stanwyck from 1950 or The Scapegoat most recently with from 59 with Alec Guinness or just the genre of this wish fulfillment fantasy thriller where there's not a whole lot of excitement but there's a lot of crazy shit happening just to explore the psychology of, uh, of the protagonist. So uh, check this one out if you're looking for something a little different, a little unusual. Don't go in expecting a exciting thriller and you might just like it i thought you told me there were no noirs in the 60s <laughs> well i mean the noir cycle was done but there's still movies like this See, we gotta we gotta do that noir <laughs> episode i'm telling you throw mickey one in there uh, maybe this is, this is a little different but but uh, the following year 1963 loren rejoins vittoria de sica 
to make what I think is her best film of the 60s, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. sort of an anthology film. All, all three are directed by DeSica, um, but the uh, different different writers for each of the episodes. Uh, Zavatini co-wrote uh, the second and third episodes. Um, the second one's based on Alberto Moravia novel. Um, but it's um, the first episode is Adelina of Naples, where she plays a woman who is selling foreign cigarettes and, and gets fined for that, but can't pay the fine, so she keeps having babies with Marcello Mastriani, her husband, Carmine, uh, because you can't go to jail if you're pregnant or or nursing. So uh, she just has one baby after another after another just to, to avoid jail time. And uh, she, like, with each baby she has, she just seems to find more and more energy. Like, she loves this, you know, being a mother to a huge family. But, uh, but Carmine, Marcello Mastriani, is... Uh, just getting more and more exhausted. He can't perform anymore in bed. He wants to comply to her wishes, but can't anymore. So she does end up going to jail, and the and the uh, the the town rallies around her and ends up getting her a shortened jail time by by raising the money for her bail or for a, a lawyer. But it's a great example of Tasika just sort of championing the people and just all all of these you know disadvantaged people who are, are have gathered their resources around this one person around Adelina uh, to, to get her out of jail. And it's a, it's, it's pretty enjoyable. I agree with you that this is her best of the sixties. And this movie is so great, honestly, because of her dynamic with Mastriani. Who's in all three of these segments with her, by the way. Right. The whole movie is the two of them as the main characters for each segment by different writers. And you can tell immediately why she was just willing to work with him on literally anything without reading the script Mm -hmm. because they have such a good dynamic. They both have, I think, and this is another massive strength of Mastriani too, in the same way that Loren actually maybe even completely equal is that he has these good comedic tics to him. He is not a comedian, but he knows how to play comedy and he's so charming and she's so charming and they just managed to find this perfect groove of being completely matched. There's no time where he feels like he's doing a better job than she is, even though sometimes her roles are a bit diminutive in comparison to his roles, but they always feel like complete equals. Not in this though. She's always got the upper hand. He's always sort of the person who's begging for her attentions and and, kind of the loser in each of these episodes. But that's what I mean. It's like he could have been the jerk. (laughs) I mean, you know, she goes from playing the kept-at-home housewife to a rich girl with no personality to then, you know, the hooker with a heart of gold, her, (laughs) her number one type. And yet she never feels powerless in any of these. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the pattern here is, is that uh, you get Loren playing in the first episode a uh, you know, lower-class woman. In the second, she's a wealthy woman from, from Milan. And in the third, set in Rome, she's, uh, she's Mara and, and plays this sort of middle-class prostitute. She's kind of stumbled into this, uh, this career for herself. She's sort of a high-class prostitute where she has only a couple of clients at a time. And, uh, and Augusto, played by... Uh, 
by Marcello Mastriani is from Bologna, and whenever he's in town, he, he just expects to have her full attention. And... He's so good in that role. He's <laughs> yeah. so amazing. He's like a total creeper, but in the best way. <laughs> he's sitting there, like, literally, like, woofing after her and, and throwing himself at her feet. And he also has this accent. It, it's like... It's just funny. The whole thing, he just does such a great job at being this sort of sex-crazed maniac. (laughs) And meanwhile, she's all for it. You know, she's having fun the whole time. It doesn't come across as ever creepy, even though he's meant to be the son of some official. But he's putting his all into being a complete maniac. and, And she's, meanwhile, trying to keep him at bay while also completely flaunting everything she has and and just owning it. It's like a total joy. He's he's trying to wield power over her, but he he has none. Like the the money doesn't really matter to her. When whenever he's over for a visit, she's more concerned about trying to like get this wannabe priest who lives in the on the balcony across from her to you know stop lusting after her and to find his faith again. And so uh, Marcello Mastriani is sort of reluctantly becomes a part of her quest her good to, deed. to get this this. <laughs> get, Umberto back on the on the right track. The fact that that this movie made me both feel for a young man who everyone was trying to get to become a priest, like I felt that and like wanted him also to go back to this calling. <laughs> and then conversely made me feel for this poor horn dog idiot dude who just really wanted to get laid and fortune wasn't in his favor. Uh it it's really fantastic, strangely fantastic. And that really famous striptease number she does uh, is is in this third segment of this film. Which is also great. (laughs) (laughs) With the stupid music and him acting like literally howling at her and and like throwing off his disposable one-use tissues as the brand new, (laughs) very exciting invention. And then, you know, that's funny about the second movie. When I first watched this, I rewatched this for this podcast but the first time i watched this i thought that the second one was a bit ho-hum and and not interesting this time around i really thought it was a lot funnier than i had ever given it credit for i do like it compared to the first and third it's not quite as enjoyable but it is there's a lot of great stuff in there it's about anna played by uh sophia loren is just this uh this bored rich housewife who's got a a number of lovers and, and today she's uh gotten uh renzo this author just the intellectual guy played by uh marcello mastriani to to be her company on, on a trip and a rolls royce you know they're off to some getaway and, and he's agreed to go with her because of course she's rich and beautiful and who wouldn't want to spend time with her but he slowly uh, starts to realize that they have some kind of physical connection but they're she's really just an awful person <laughs> and uh, you know, and being with her sort of goes against all of his principles, and and uh, and there's there's a little bit of she's a terrible driver, so he, she says, oh, you want to give it a shot? And he's not used to driving a car that big, so they almost get in an accident, almost hit a kid, and, and there's a little fender bender, and she uh, and she she shows her true nature when she cares more about the damage that's done to a Rolls Royce than uh, you know him at all, and it's it's. It's pretty entertaining. I don't know how this can be based on a full Alberto Moravia novel, but saying it's the weakest of the three segments is not doing it enough justice because it is pretty good. No, you know, this time around, what what really got me was every single time. At first, I think I might have dismissed it because I get tired of the bad women driver trope, which is just (laughs) dumb. But this one, actually, I would say... 
I didn't realize the timing of every time she gets into an accident. And it's always after she said something along the lines of like, you know, I'm just so insightful and I'm so open to being, to being empathetic and learning. You know, it's like some kind of, some, some drivel about how misunderstood she is. And then she just slams into people like that. And of course it's all of these like really silent, like you, you see everything from inside the car dashboard. So you see all these people on the street, get out of their car, look to see if there's damage, like give her, shoot her a dirty look and then get back in their car. It was actually, it's way funnier than I gave it credit for. And so then once it finally gets to the end where it's about um, him swerving because this kid's in the road uh, and then she freaks out about the car, which of course earlier she was totally dismissing as whatever, but now that there's damage to it, she's freaking out. And then he just literally gives up and is like, you know what, fuck it. Like he just goes right on the side of the road and just stands there. And then this, of course, some other guy in some hot rod car pulls up and he's like, hey lady, like, you know, can I help you, madame, or whatever? And she's like, oh, you know these Rolls Royces. They're just so, you know, <laughs> like... And then the two of them speed off with Marcella just standing there. And it's 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 really funny. It's it's not as laugh out loud funny as the other two segments. The first one actually to me just feels almost like it's like a Disney film about pregnancy. <laughs> but this the third one makes me laugh out loud. But the this middle one is subtly funny and I I, I didn't give it enough credit the first time around. Yeah, I mean they're all satirical, but that one's it's probably the uh, the most deadpan satirical of the, of the, the three it's still still worth it um now you finally get to talk about uh, your your favorite the fall of the roman empire <laughs> is it i didn't dislike fall of the roman empire which i feel is like what you're setting me up for by calling it my favorite well, it's the one you were dreading of talking about, so I thought... Uh... No, I, I was dreading El Cid, actually. Fall of the Roman Empire is uh, another Anthony Mann epic. And this one, weirdly, is, is almost easier to sum up than El Cid was. <laughs> uh, this is basically just that, that period of Roman history where, where Marcus Aurelius is dying and then Commodus takes over by underhanded means and then drives the whole damn empire into the ground <laughs> by sowing seeds of discord and distrust and you know people lose their faith in the dream of rome and you know it's not the literal fall of rome but it is the beginning of the downfall of what hundreds of years later would be the end of rome so i think actually this is what the, the movie gladiator from 2000 was based on oh i didn't realize that but I haven't watched that in a while, so I don't totally remember. But um, I like Roman history. I, this is something I know more about. So I found this a lot easier to watch than El Cid in a way. But it also is really weirdly bland and it kind of blows. <laughs> <laughs> like on one hand, again, with the epicness of it is absolutely fantastic. And it's worth watching for the fact that there has this completely bonkers set of Rome which at the time and maybe to this day was the largest outdoor film set in the history of film <laughs> it is insane you watch this to the point where I was like oh my god like I was like is there I was trying to rack my brain to think like where in Greece or Italy where could this like where do they have this many 
of these structures so close together and, and on these little hillsides. Like I was trying to figure out how the hell they did this. And then as the shots get closer and closer and you see these massive crowds of people walking through the streets uh, in celebration, you realize, oh my God, these are sets. <laughs> and it was really awesome, actually. It was like, to just watch this movie for the set alone is, I would say, 100% worth it. Another reason to watch this is young Christopher Plummer playing a psycho comedist, and he looks just like Michael Fassbender, more so than I've ever <laughs> realized, and I enjoyed that. I thought he was did a good job. But the biggest issue here is that it's just I don't I don't know I want to kind of blame man for this I don't think that the script was bad I think the performances were pretty solid you get Alec Guinness as Marcus Aurelius you have Stephen Boyd as Livius Sophia Loren as Lucia was meant to be this the sister of Commodus James Mason is in this as Timonides it's interesting <laughs> <laughs> But the thing is that the, the camera gets so caught up in the epicness of everything that it really loses the heart of the story and it loses the characters. So what starts is more focused on the death of Marcus Aurelius then gets lost in the grandiosity of the set of Rome that they clearly spent the entire hog on. <laughs> and so things start to get kind of glaze-eyed. And I don't know if it's because that they were too focused on how the camera was moving, that they weren't really giving enough feedback. I don't know if it's just that the camera is never close enough for you to really see what's happening with these actors. It's strange. It almost reminds me of what happens with movies that are too green screen based and you can literally see the, the actor's eyes glaze over as you're line reading. You know, like it's just something about this that is just weirdly phoned in. But there's a couple of really great things in this. I mean, Sophia Loren, I feel like she was just reiterating her role in El Cid here. She plays the sort of pining and serious daughter. She's in love with Livius, who is the man that, that her father intended to take over the entire empire. And then, of course, her his son gets jealous and angry. And Livius is too good of a guy to let that happen. And he kind of lets the son take over, who, of course, r ruins it for everybody. <laughs> so, so Loren in this... She has a good moment in the end where she's sort of leading a rebel army against her own brother and against Rome, but uh, she's really interchangeable in this. I, I was really not impressed with her, but I mean, it's an epic. It was a good movie. I had, it had some really memorable scenes, but it's when I say memorable, I mean like visually, <laughs> you know? So I don't know if you're looking for Loren, this isn't really going to give you too much. Well, fortunately, after this big epic, she got to return to what she does best with the Sika in marriage Italian style. From the same year, 1964, doesn't quite reach the heights of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Still pretty good. She's playing a prostitute yet again. An illiterate one. She, she often plays illiterate characters. She has this long-running uh, relationship with Don Dumi Soriano, who's this wealthy businessman. And um, whenever he's in town, he, uh, he, he looks her up. He goes to the, the brothel where she works. She's sort of his personal plaything, And the relationship sort of develops. And I guess because she met him when she was six, 17 or something, that you know, she sort of developed a 
love for him, but then you know he he'll he's never despite this like long lasting relationship, he actually brings her into his business and uh, and you know she she's running his stores, his grocery, his bakery, and and uh, they're basically married, but he refuses to actually marry her and give her his name. It's it's actually it, it, there's an interesting structure to this film where the first half you sort of see everything from his perspective and. He doesn't seem like such a bad guy. I mean, he's a smarmy creep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's a smarmy creep who just, you know, enjoys spending time with prostitutes and only cares about her when, when he's in town. But yeah, the, the second half you actually get from her perspective and you see just what, you know, what a creep he is and how she's done so much for him and has been practically, you know, his wife, but he, he won't marry her and... Um, it's it's more the structure of this film than anything that's really interesting because there's sort of a, a twist at, at the halfway mark where, where everything you you think is happening is, is different than than what is actually happening. It's based on a play by Eduardo de Filippo, who also wrote the first segment in uh, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, you know, where she's the eternally pregnant woman. Yeah, I mean, it's always fun to watch the dynamic between Loren and... Mastriani, like no matter what, like he plays a particularly unlikable fellow in this movie. I think the key is when he's got a mustache, he's uh, <laughs> he, he's particularly slimy, and uh, and when he shaves it off, he's he's a little more likable. But he's definitely mustachioed in this one, and uh, the whole movie sort of hinges on this this paternity issue, where it got a little less interesting, but it also sort of speaks to. The, the very Italianness of this movie where, you know, she has some children that he didn't know about and, and she reveals and one of them is his and, and he's just, it drives him crazy. Like, she doesn't say which one and, and he just needs to know and it, it sort of drives the whole last third of this movie and it gets a little, you know, I, I got a little impatient with that part of it, but it also just made it seem that much more Italian. I remember this one being that that twist being really good and saving the whole movie for me, but the movie still being kind of bloated. Yeah, it's it's a little too long. Like it takes a long time to make its point and get to get to where it's going, but it's good. I mean, it's Zavatini didn't have anything to do with this one, so maybe that's part of it. That's why it's not peak Desica. But of all of the movies that come out called something italian style this is one of the few that actually i think deserves that title in as far as referencing divorce italian style it does feel connected to that movie in in its own way and not just because of mastriani's mustache (laughs) it it also has the most misleading poster yeah (laughs) it seems like such a happy-go-lucky romantic movie and Loren and Mar- Mastriani have the worst relationship imaginable <laughs> in this thing. <laughs> yeah, so now if you want to talk about Operation Crossbow from the next year, 1965. There's actually a run here of three that you watched solo. So I don't know if you want to race through those at all. I might because... It seems like at least a a couple of those are fairly forgettable. I mean, Operation Crossbow is definitely a slog, I'll have to say. I I enjoy a a good old embellished true war story as much as anyone else who's watched a Steven Spielberg movie, but... (laughs) It just has a bizarre sense of pacing. I all right. So Operation Crossbow. This is uh, this is about based on a true story about how 
Allied agents, the British agents, infiltrated the Nazi rocket complex uh, in order to obtain their secrets and sabotage their plant from the inside. So it's not an uninteresting plot, but it spends a whole lot of time leading up to, well, do they have rockets? And it's like, yeah, we know they have rockets. <laughs> like, we're watching this in 1965. Like, we got it. Don't worry. World War II's ended. Like, we know the British are going to win this one. So there's, like, a lot of this bizarre intrigue buildup where there, like, absolutely doesn't need to be. But surprisingly... Even though Lorena is a pretty small bit part in this and bafflingly has top billing, she's <laughs> and is on the poster. She's in this for literally 10 minutes. That was probably Carlo Ponti's doing. He, he insisted that she get. I would billing. that wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, the, the women in this movie actually have the best roles, weirdly, even though they're all completely off to the side. But you have Barbara Rudding is a is the German Nazi test pilot, Hannah Reich. Which is a rather mute role. I think she has maybe two or three lines of dialogue, but she gets a really exciting in the cockpit plane ride and then crash land that she's the only one who survives out of several men who die trying. And then Sophia Loren uh, shows up midway in a small but pretty powerful role that kind of kicks up the tension and actually made me sit up and take notice more so than the rest of the film. I thought like, oh, okay, I got this. Is This is where this is going to go from here on out. And then... <laughs> it doesn't but basically she is as the, these british agents are in there to pretend to be german scientists so that they get hired at this rocket plant that's top secret she ends up being the wife of one of these men who who are all missing in action and so she shows up hearing that this man is at the hotel her husband's at the hotel she shows up and then finds this british man who then tries to lie his way out of you know, why he's in this room and why there's this framed photograph of her and her children. And, you know, eventually when some Nazi policemen come over and knock on the door, it becomes way tense because he has to lie and say that he is indeed her husband. And she suddenly realizes what's happening. And now she's sort of caught in this, you know, if I try and fight this, he'll kill me. But if I go along with it, I'm going to get killed by the government kind of thing. So I don't know if I'll I won't totally spoil it. It's it's a good it's a good moment. It's probably the best moment of the movie. It's not a bad movie. It's just it's more of a, a nationalistic romp than a, than a thriller per se. But the the spy stuff is fun, and I I got an overall kick out of it. I think it's pretty well liked by World War Two thriller fans in general. It's definitely more about the story of how it happened kind of film. I, you know, I, your run of the mill kind of embellished but true story about war. The next one was Lady L. Which was a pretty interesting movie. This is 1965. And this is directed by uh, Peter Ustinov, who I think had a great deal. He really pushed to get this going. He also wrote it, co-wrote it. Lady L is it's <laughs> have you seen this i've never seen it no oh really shoot well i mean i kind of think you should watch it but it's also like disappointing <laughs> it's kind of i would say it's a it's a snappy little comedy it has some really genuinely funny jokes i i did at least smirk several times throughout this 
Considering it's Sophia Loren, Paul Newman, David Niven, and and nobody knows this movie at all, I think says something about it. <laughs> it's just weird. It just because it, it it has really good editing, and then it just runs out of steam. Like I don't even I can't even pinpoint when it happened because suddenly it's just like it's just not interesting anymore. And I don't know if it gets caught up. It, it is kind of between being this almost Tom Jones like farce mixed with a like political socioeconomic satire. (laughs) And I liked all of those aspects of it, but I kind of think that what happens here is yet again, nobody trusts Loren to carry it. She's the main character, but it gets so lost in Paul Newman is a, is an anarchist who she falls for and there's a little too much focus on his anarchist group of buddies who all want to kill the duke or whoever it is that's, you know, visiting the town. I, like, it, the, the sort of details just don't even matter. And then they get too into it, but they don't actually have anything terribly clever to say as far as satire goes. So basically, Lady L, it starts off with Sophia Loren in old age makeup, and she's recounting her life to a man who wants to write a biography about her and she starts off as washing clothing for a bunch of prostitutes. She isn't the prostitute, but she's the person who washes the clothes. And she of course gets mistaken for a prostitute. And then Paul Newman playing Armand who likes to bomb banks and stuff. He shows up at the brothel to hide and she is waiting for her true love. And she takes one look at Paul Newman and she's like, done found it there he is (laughs) and uh so she sort of falls for him no matter what but he's very poor and also he bombs shit for a living (laughs) he doesn't do anything (laughs) you get some good really good gags in there about kind of like tossing a bag with a bomb back and forth and people not really realizing what's in it but she knows what's in it so she has a really like she has great physical comedy in this actually I, i was very impressed with her throughout but the movie just keeps detracting into a little too much about what Paul Newman's up to, which at the end doesn't amount to really much of anything, quite frankly. It's just that he uh, believes in anarchists, but the anarchists are kind of portrayed as fools. Then you get David Niven showing up as essentially the rich man who wants to marry a woman but he wants her to be in love with somebody else so that the pressure's off and that he can spend all of his time sort of masochistically trying to win her over, which doesn't really get explained other than it feels like it's just his kink, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is also pretty amusing. I mean, like he's, he's amusing, but like it doesn't go anywhere either. And it essentially kind of dissolves into this bizarre love triangle thruple situation. <laughs> <laughs> But it spends too much time on the men in this. And the fact that Sophia Loren's really kind of the only woman who has a lot of lines besides a couple of prostitutes in the beginning, I feel like so much of her life is revolves around the men and her trying to keep Armand, even though he is basically trying to get himself killed as an anarchist, and then kind of falling for the consistency and the comfort that you know Niven is bringing. And then you throw in a couple of decent one-liners and and again good physical humor but they just never give lady l enough i don't really know who she is at the end of the day and i wish that she had gotten more of a tom jones kind of thing i wish that they had focused way more on just 
who she was and what she wanted and what she needed and less on these men who were pretty interchangeably boring, funny enough, considering Paul Newman and David Niven, but I don't know. It wasn't bad. It was kind of interesting. I would say this one is is worth checking out if it interests you whatsoever. I thought it might have been connected to Lola Montez somehow. Right. This woman talking about all her previous loves and, and adventures. And Peter Ustinov, of course, is in that one. But I guess not. I might skip this one. Sounds dull. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it was like a three-star movie. It's a solid watch. It just wasn't exciting. It wasn't great. Then the next one I thought was really bizarre for many reasons this one's judith which came out in 1966 directed by daniel mann sophia loren is a jewish woman who is recruited by israeli rebels in palestine to track down the Nazi that she had to marry in Dachau concentration camp so that they can capture him. But she's only there to kill him. The whole movie is shot in Israel and it is really strange. (laughs) I don't know. This wasn't a very good movie, but it's just such a bizarre oddity. I'm just not too sure. I mean, I'm trying to figure out why this movie was made and who it was made for personally (laughs) you have peter finch in here playing the like zionist organizations the haganas kind of rebels and he actually does a great job in this i was actually really impressed with him as basically the kind of world weary kibbutz director he he loves his community and he's standing up for the people at the same time and secret kind of thing loren starts off super badass in this movie it starts off with her being smuggled into the country and then emerging out of a shipping container with another woman who had died, did not make it through the trip, whereas she did. And the second after she gets out of this container, you think being scarred and, and, you know, miserable and also near death herself, she takes like a shower and she's like, all right, let's get some Nazi blood like immediately. But the movie, again, it's like they don't really keep true to Judith's character, who, as she describes herself in the beginning of this film, is sort of hardened by loss and war. She talks about uh, having being forced to marry her rapist and, and torturer in Dachau. She talks about uh, losing a child who was from this Nazi. She's completely driven to find this guy so that she can murder him. But then, like, they'll shove in the scenes of her in, like, what I can only describe as diaper shorts. Like, like it's the kind of shorts you actually see now. <laughs> They're like so, so short. It just looks like you're wearing a, di- like a, like a denim diaper. And then she like walks around making everyone in the kibbutz kind of like whistle after her. And it doesn't make any sense because it's not like she's trying to like seduce anyone in the kibbutz. Like, I just don't really understand what the point is. And then the whole movie dissolves into this really bizarre blowhard militaristic rah-rah Israel's firepower which is weird because it's meant to be that Syria is attacking and it's meant to be literally the days before Israel has claimed their own statehood there's a major pushback of course and the British have just left and whatever and and I just don't understand what this was here for because again they're not true to do this character 
they don't follow through on the thought behind defending Israel's statehood beyond just saying like the British suck and ex Nazis are like working with the Arabs to kill us. <laughs> you know, like like that seems to be all you get. Like it doesn't really go into trying to convince you that Israel is something worthwhile to be rooting for, that you should even care about this story. And then again, when it ends in this, this massive battle where it's meant to be Syria attacking, but all of the tanks have these giant stars of David on the side of them. And, you know, it just... And actually, so, I mean, interestingly, that you have Nicholas Rogue as second camera in this. So there is some kind of interesting shots of sneaking around... Uh, there's meant to be a, a scene where they're in Damascus. I'm, I'm pretty positive it's somewhere in Israel, but they're, you know, sort of slinking around these very narrow streets. That was really interesting. I, I enjoyed that. The The battle stuff isn't bad. It just, just feels weird and unjustified. <laughs> and then it also ends with this huge loose end that it doesn't wrap up and it feels almost like they just ran out of their budget. <laughs> so at this point, I'm just convinced that this was like, some kind of like weird CIA propaganda <laughs> that doesn't really do a good job of selling you on the propaganda of it. I mean, it's based on a novel, but like... Yeah, I saw that Lawrence Durrell wrote the story, but then the novel of it, it was based on wasn't published till 2012. So there's probably a, an interesting story behind the production of this movie, but there's there's not much written about it. Not that I can find. I mean, I'm sure there's there's got to be something somewhere, but yeah, and then but reading what the novel was about, it it seems way more interesting than the movie. So, I don't know. I mean, I have to say this could have been a really good role for Loren and it has some really good moments. If it wasn't so undercut by the fact that guys couldn't keep it in their pants and they like needed to put her in tight clothing <laughs> uh just to undercut her character, then um you know, it would have been, it could have been interesting at least. I, I mean, I'm amazed that this was, you know, made in, even in 66, it's just a very strange film. Well, her follow-up the same year, Arabesque, was actually one of her bigger hits of the 60s. She and Gregory Peck sort of try to recapture the magic that Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn had in Charade, same director as Stanley Donnan, and it really just feels like a Charade redo. Only uh, Sophia Loren is the uh, sort of mysterious figure with with a lot of secrets, who's who's always telling lies, and you don't know who she really is, and and uh, and Gregory Peck is the innocent who's been dragged into this crazy spy story. He's an Egyptologist who uh, has been recruited by some Arabs. There are different factions of, of Arabs who are all sort of fighting against each other, and you're never really clear who's good and who's bad. But uh, he's, he's translating this uh, the secret message, this cipher that's been written in hieroglyphics, and only he can figure out what the message is. And Sophia Loren is trying to figure out what the results of his translation is so that she can save the prime minister of Saudi Arabia. And it's, it's, I mean, it's all very convoluted, wacky spy stuff. I'd seen this a while back, never made a huge impression on me, but it's fairly entertaining. I mean, it's easy to watch. It's pretty breezy. Gregory Peck just has a lot of quippy one-liners in it that I thought were supposed to be like James Bond-ish because this is sort of in that spy genre and we're in the middle of 
James Bond fever now in 1966. But really, it, it when I was doing a little research into this movie and found out that Cary Grant was supposed to be in this one as well in the Gregory Peck role, and a lot of these lines would have been perfect coming out of Cary Grant's mouth, and I think it you know it was, it was written for him. So Gregory Peck doesn't embarrass himself, but he does prove that he's not really the quippy one-liner kind of star. He's better in a more serious... Uh, role, I think. Loren is, uh, you know, she's got star power. She's charismatic in it, but she doesn't do anything particularly interesting. She plays an Arab, you know, one of the, the many uh, nationalities that, that she ended up playing in the 60s. Any, anything besides American, and, and they'll get uh, Loren to play it. But the bad guy kind of looks like Peter Sellers. <laughs> he's got Peter Sellers glasses, but he doesn't sound like him. I don't know. It's a easy to watch Good time, nothing special. A popular favorite of, of 1966, but there's really not too much reason for anybody to revisit it now. Uh, you've, you've seen it before. Hey, I remember enjoying it. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it. I remember it being snappy and attractive, and yeah, it's <laughs> about all I really wanted out of it. It moves. It's just pretty nonsensical. But then again, I enjoy these bootleg bonds. <laughs> but now we come to a real oddity in, in Loren's career. The final film by Charlie Chaplin, he's trying to make it for 30 plus years, called The Countess from Hong Kong. with Sophia Loren and Marlon Brando. Yeah, this one is a complete oddity. <laughs> I mean, like, absolutely. <laughs> like, I thought we should talk about this just because I... This is one of those how-did-this-get-made kind of films. And I understand how it got made, but uh, when you're watching it, like, you could tell me this was actually directed by David Lynch and I would, I would believe it. I'd be like, oh, weird, but <laughs> sure. You know what I mean? Like, this is essentially, it's Marlon Brando is this Ogden Mears, and he's on a cruise ship going to Hong Kong. He's going to become a diplomat, and he gets, he arrives. It turns out he's not the diplomat he thought he would be. I think he still ends up getting to become a diplomat for Saudi Arabia or something like that. He lands in Hong Kong with his buddy, Sidney Chaplin. Son of Charlie Chaplin. Who's playing uh, Harvey Crothers. And they go out in the town and they end up meeting. Apparently in Hong Kong, it's full of uh, brothels that are, well, it's like call girls who are all countesses. It's all countesses who have been kicked out of their countries and are now living in Hong Kong and working as call girls or at least, you know, maybe not flat out prostitutes, though it kind of feels like that's implied. Sophia Loren is Natasha. She is a countess from Russia and she ends up sneaking aboard the yacht in, in Marlon Brando's room. And her dream is to just go to America. That's it. That's all she wants. She's like, we don't, you know, we don't have to do anything, but I just got to get to America. Just let me stay in your room this whole time. And he's like, absolutely not because he's a diplomat. He's married. All of the excuses is the plot. Even this movie though, <laughs> 
I don't know. There's enough plot in this movie for you know, maybe a, a fairly amusing, you know, 75-minute film. But at an hour 45, it just goes on and on and on and on. The story behind this movie, I actually think, is way more fascinating. There was a ton of drama behind the scenes. Never mind it took Charlie Chaplin ages to get this thing made. He had been trying for decades and decades for this crummy <laughs> story to get made. Yeah, it was supposed to be Paulette Goddard and, and supposed to be his follow-up to, to Modern Times or something with her, and it just never it never happened. I mean, according to Brando, he, he was miserable on set. He was miserable, I think, in part because he tried to hit on Sophia Loren, and she slapped him across the face and said, don't you ever touch me or do anything. And then he apparently was not very friendly to her after that. Um, and then he, I think, had the flu. He got sick multiple times. He was then also disgusted by the way that Charlie Chaplin treated his son on set. He was like, you know, sensitive soul that Brando was, was totally horrified by that. Uh, Loren was going through her official French divorce with Ponty to then get remarried. So I think she was dealing with that drama. The whole thing. And, and then this movie, I mean, like, Brando looks miserable. Sophia is way overly hyper than anyone else. Everyone moves and talks like they only exist when like somebody has is in the room with them. It's like they stand still and just wait till the camera moves over and then they suddenly come alive like animatronics. And they're like emotionless and they're only there to serve like some specific purpose, typically for Brando or Loren. And it's like I've never been so weirdly fascinated and also disappointed by a movie like this. <laughs> there aren't a lot of laughs in it. I mean, you can sort of see where they're going for laughs. Like there is some Chaplin-esque slapstick in there. Right. There's a lot of slamming doors and people hiding whenever the doorbell rings and trying to not reveal that uh, that Natasha is on the ship with them. And it's um, it's just not that funny. I just, I don't think Chaplin can direct people other than himself very well. Like, that was what I came away from this thinking. I mean, like, apparently what he would do is he would act out every single role for the actors in this film before they would do it to tell them how he wanted it done. In that way, I kind of don't blame Brando for hating him. <laughs> because if he's going to sit there and everyone was like, oh, he did such a good job. Oh, he really became Loren. He really became Brando in that moment. And it's like, yeah, then maybe just make the movie by yourself. <laughs> it, I don't know. Everyone just looked miserable. And, and I don't know if it's also there's fairly incompetent camera work and editing. As you said, those comedic beats are there, but they're buried in this like unbroken long takes. And it's so stagey. Like you've got these two staterooms on this cruise ship and like 90 percent of this thing seems to take place in between these two rooms or there's you know a door between them maybe it was a, a cost saving measure or something but it really just it's so insular like it just it, it's so fake like it, and it's it doesn't feel 60s at all for that reason because you know at this point in 1966 like they were really like trying to get out on the you know, in actual locations and, and you know, give people their their money's worth for, uh, you know, if they're going to go out to the theaters. And and, uh, and this movie is just, like, it feels like it could have been made any time 
in the 30s or 40s or 50s. Right. There's some saucy language, I guess, that probably couldn't have been made too much earlier than this. But other than that, there's like it's just so old fashioned. It almost looks like a sitcom. It's like there's one stationary camera that just kind of pans <laughs> uh, back and forth and that's it. You know, like I don't, was there, I can't even remember if there were two cameras in this. It feels like there was only, there's always one camera that's just facing. It feels like you're peering through a window in the fourth wall and you're watching them rehearse. You know what I mean? It's like unfinished and you can feel the boundaries of what's meant to be invisible all around you. (laughs) And sometimes it just cuts to showcase like the musical score and like crummy back projection. <laughs> and then all the sets when they're not in the, you know, the state room with, the, with, with that's the two rooms or it all seems like it's all in this one like sound stage where they're, they've like, okay, we've, we've done all the ballroom scenes. So let's clear, let's knock down all these, all the set and, and rebuild this as the, as the hotel lobby in, in Waikiki. Like it all, <laughs> it's just these giant spaces that, are not very convincingly decorated at all to, to make you think that <laughs> that any of this is happening in real spaces. I did get a few laughs out of Margaret Rutherford. I think the only time I actually laughed was when uh, she's the old lady in, in bed who is, uh, she's Mrs. Gall Swallow, who at, uh, at one point uh, Sophia Loren is pretending to be so that she doesn't get kicked off the ship. And when we discovered that Miss Gall Swallow is actually this, you know, very old lady who's confined to her bed and it's Margaret Rutherford. She's got <laughs> she's got the funniest scene in the movie where she wants to get rid of her this teddy bear because it's got a red tongue and and the, the she's got all these ribbons in her bed and it's just a lot of you know, a lot of non sequitur sort of like comedy and I wish the whole movie was just Margaret Rutherford in her in her <laughs> stateroom bed just demanding things of her nurse but uh unfortunately it only lasts for about three minutes i don't want to be just sitting here dunking on this film (laughs) like i've just done for the past five minutes but like even to accept all of this i don't see enough in the story here to be that interesting i feel like the pathos is is like radiating off this thing (laughs) but it's undeserved and it's totally shoved in and Nobody feels like a human being, so I don't know why I would get emotional over their <laughs> plight. And in a way, I mean, the story that it, this was meant to be that Chaplin met some other countess in real life and, and based this off if he wanted to write this story about kind of her life. So he claimed the concept is interesting, but what you get is this sort of run-of-the-mill story of infidelity. Brando predictably decides to leave Tippi Hendren, who's his wife, uh, without sight unseen of of even going home. It's like he spends a little too long in the same corridor with Loren, and suddenly the the pull is just too hard. He can't resist it, and he has to make her get married to his servant, who spends the whole thing trying to bed Loren, and and then there's all these other guys who are trying to bed Loren constantly, and... Meanwhile, Loren is just wants to, she just wants to be an American, you know, she's really not trying to flaunt anything particularly, but it doesn't go anywhere. And then the end, you're meant to like probably wipe a tear away when uh, he says he's going to go off to Saudi Arabia and be a a diplomat, which was his dream at the beginning of the movie. But no, no, he decides he's going to stay right there in Waikiki or wherever and be the husband to Loren. And, you know, it's like, 
She's sitting there on a table alone, staring out of the window with one tear rolling down her cheek. It's like, (laughs) I don't know. I just can't. It it might just be the fact that this is just way too outdated for 66. Yeah. I think big Chaplin fans tend to champion this movie, saying it's uh, undeserveably slammed by uh, by the critics but there's just not enough there you know it's got a, got a few moments but in a in a movie this long there's just not enough to maintain anybody's interest i mean i almost want to say you should watch it because it's just so weird <laughs> but speaking of weird the next film that loren made in 1967 it's called more than a miracle it's more than a miracle. I'm in love. Directed by Francesco Rossi, although uh, filmed in English, or as per usual in the Italian film industry, is filmed without sound. But you can tell because the dubbed English dialogue matches the lips of the actors that this was intended to be released in English. But it's. Um, very different than Hands Across the City, which was the, was the last. This has been the weirdest introduction to a director I've ever had is watching Hands Over the City <laughs> in a previous episode of Cinema 60 you should absolutely listen to. And then watching More Than a Miracle as the only two films I've seen by him. Yeah. And this is a, a total fairy tale, like a, a lot of like just impossible, crazy stuff happening in this movie. Uh flying monks and witches that cast love spells and and uh turn 2000 eggs into 2000 hatched chicks for no particular reason but it's all shot in this very realistic style which makes it especially weird like it's got all of these fantastical elements and i think in in some ways it kind of works like when you see the the flying monk you just kind of gasp and like that's the first magical thing you see in this movie and and you think whoa it's very eight and a half (laughs) yeah it really uh it it gets me kind of excited but then it just it's it's just a weird mixture of tones where where uh, omar sharif is a spanish prince and it, it takes place in 17th century italy and he's supposed to marry one of seven princesses his parents are, you know, want him to make a match so, so they can expand their empire and, and uh, he's just not interested in any of them. And, and the, the flying monk says, your future wife, you'll know because she'll cook you seven dumplings out of this dough. And he meets Sophia Loren and she only cooks, well, she cooks seven dumplings, but then eats one of them. It's, it's, it's really a bizarre fairy tale like none of it makes a whole lot of sense it feels very like grim like both in the sense that it is grim and also grim brothers fairy tale it's very like mean you know it's fantastical but then there's multiple scenes of just like the prince gets buried alive because he pretends to be dead because she won't make him the extra dumpling and later on she freezes him in place with a love spell because some witches come to her and they're like yo like that was a prince girl you messed up and <laughs> she's like oh shit and then casts a spell and then the the only way that to free him is to give him a kiss she kisses him and the first thing he does is smack her across the face as hard as he can because he's like you you asshole <laughs> you the first of several slaps that he gives her he's oh he's yeah such he's a jerk. vicious they're both pretty unlikable but by you know you sort of get to be on her side when she sort of 
tries to be nice so that the prince will love her again or, or something. But um, he's he's pretty irredeemably awful. Right. Omar Sharif is Prince Rodrigo, and you really don't want her to have anything to do with him. And this ends with a dishwashing competition. <laughs> Which is entertaining. A lot of this movie is really fun to watch. You know, you sit there watching with your, your jaw hanging open because it's so weird. But, yeah, it, it doesn't work. But I... I recommend it just because it's such an oddity. Well, apparently for Lorraine, her top memory of shooting this film is that she and Sharif had a cook-off. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were lamenting all the crappy food they were getting at craft services. So he literally called his mother up and flew her out of Egypt to have her cook eggplant parmesan for Lorraine and, and like select members of the crew. <laughs> <laughs> And then Lorraine had to fly her mother out because she was like, actually, my mother's eggplant parmesan is the best. And then everyone voted and agreed that Sharif won by a small margin. (laughs) (laughs) But like that was her like autobiography, like, oh, here's a movie I did. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. It's, It's very strange. I guess thinking back on it, I sort of, I also, I like fantasy stuff and I liked a lot of elements of this, but I think the stuff that just bummed me out was like the constant slapping of her in the face. I mean, she's a jerk, but like, geez, like she doesn't deserve it for that much. (laughs) It's especially cruel in the end. He really slaps her hard across the face when she loses this dishwashing competition, which already is pretty demeaning and obnoxious to begin with, but he sort of does it because he knows that she'd win. And then she gets foiled because someone sabotages her. But, um, yeah, I don't know. This was very, very strange. Now I don't, like, I, I don't even know what a third Francesco Rossi movie is going to look like anymore. <laughs> I, have, I have absolutely no idea. It could be like a like a John Wayne Western. I'd be like, I guess. <laughs> um, having seen a few, this this one's definitely the outlier. The, the more political uh, stuff is really where his... Uh, his heart seems to be. And there is that aspect to this a little bit, now that I think of it. Like, there is a lot of aristocrats versus peasants sort of stuff. Like, you, you'll you never fit into this world and, and this aristocratic haughtiness. Like, you, know, wh- how could you even consider, like, marrying this peasant girl? And, and But it's not, you know, it's not heavy-hitting enough to really call it political, but it's it's obvious that his that Rossi's concerns are sort of sociological, socioeconomic. So maybe it is um, just an anti-fantasy sort of underpinning the dream of becoming a princess movie. I guess in Europe, this movie was called Cinderella Italian style, which of makes course. a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to end with a, an Italian style, ghost Italian style. Because this is 1968, and it's her last movie of the 60s. She make, Her next movie wouldn't be for a couple of years after this. Yeah, this one was, I would say, strictly mediocre. Directed by Renato Castellani. You have Vittorio Gassman, who I... He's another one where I really like him when he's cast well in a good script. And then he ends up in shit like this. <laughs> and I'm like, man, you are so wasted. And Sophia Loren, and they're they're a married couple, and they are very very poor. 
but it actually it has a pretty good beginning which is essentially loren on her terrace and she walks out and she starts talking to victoria gasman who's pasquale and her name's maria and she goes on about like the proper way to make coffee or something like that and he goes uh hey i'm single and i have all my teeth do you want to get married (laughs) (laughs) and she she stares at him for like this totally silent about five seconds and then the next thing is like wedding bells and then it gives you the (laughs) the intro ghost italian style it was just questy fantasmi like these ghosts or whatever but i will say that this movie has some good comedic timing and has some good editing but the plot just sort of burns out and it focuses again on the wrong thing like the dynamic between Vittorio Gassman and Sophia Loren is solid like they should have spent way more time on that but instead the plot is that um, Pasquale ends up in this like gigantic mansion with 18 rooms and the doorman tells him that the rent's free and we'll even pay you some money to, to live here you just have to live here and it's sort of and next door is a guy that studies ghosts essentially and it turns out that people have died in this mansion and so everyone's too afraid to live in it the last guy who lived there had a heart attack and yada yada everyone's terrified but uh, because it's so big and and it's completely free Pasquale is like I'm gonna take it and so he gets this massive mansion he doesn't tell Maria that it's haunted and so only he knows that and meanwhile she's like wow what's the deal with this he's we're gonna turn it into a boarding house for opera singers that's it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be so good. And meanwhile, um, Maria is having some doubts about this spontaneous marriage that they've, they've been in for a bit and clearly isn't going anywhere. And she has this admirer who I think was an ex, Alfredo, who's played by Mario Adorf, who is like a priest... <laughs> We're, you know, I, I, that, that's wasn't totally clear to me because he lives with a bunch of nuns, but he spends the whole movie chasing Loren. And so long story short, he ends up in a closet one day because he's trying to go after Loren. She shoves him in a closet because she says, Pasquale is very jealous. If he sees you, he'll freak out. Uh, so he shoves him in the closet and then Pasquale, the door sort of creeps open and Pasquale sees him and he thinks that it's the ghost of the house. Because she acts like she can't see him and she doesn't know what to do because she's terrified that he's going to notice. And so instead of telling her, oh my God, there's a ghost and this is the ghost and it's a ghost house, he decides not to tell her anything and just goes with the fact that there's a ghost here. And he had come there to bring Maria money to essentially bribe her out of this marriage and, and to help her on her feet and get her out. So instead, he ends up giving the money to Pasquale because he's been caught red-handed and he doesn't know the whole ghost thing either. So it's like this total like case of mistaken identity as a ghost. <laughs> but he doesn't look like a ghost. He looks like a normal-ass man. But Pasquale just freaks out. He's just completely, you know, anytime. And he spends the rest of the time, like, he uses all the money to clean the place up and he gets his little boarding house for opera singers started. But of course, he only tenant is this woman who is dressed like a mod space call girl (laughs) she's wearing these like completely see-through plastic dresses and it doesn't make any sense it does have a couple there's a handful of moments that are genuinely amusing but then there's also moments like the old boyfriend alfredo comes in to try and bone her in the middle of the night he ends up with that mod lady instead and then he freaks out when he realizes that he had sex with her and not Loren. 
He punches her in the face and gives her a black eye, which is after she talks about the fact that her boyfriend, a.k.a. Pimp, already gave her a black eye, and that means that he loves me. And he runs down the hall screaming, I lost my virginity to a slut. Like, damn all women. And it's like, this is meant to be humor. (laughs) (laughs) That's what makes it Italian style, the satire of it. Yeah, real satire. I mean, like, there's nothing... Satirical. That's a, it's just buying into the lowest hanging fruit of the dumbest possible situation. A man who absolutely questions nothing, who otherwise makes normal life everyday decisions, and seems to be able to differentiate between, uh, you know, a door and a in a window, <laughs> but can't figure out like a spirit from a, a normal ass human man. So I there's just like I just can't I can't buy that kind of stuff. I like dumb humor. But this is too stupid for me. I just couldn't do it. Well, I guess Ponty thought it was a good choice for Lorraine. <laughs> you produced this one. I mean, Lorraine, she, again, she does as good of a job as she can. She has some amusing moments, but this is kind of more about Vittorio Gassman. And when she finally gets that last scene in the end where she's doing some haunting of her own, it's the funniest damn scene in the whole thing. It's really good. And then the other thing is the last literally three minutes of this movie had the best damn joke in the entire thing that made me laugh out loud, which is that they decide, the two of them decide to move to Scotland to get out of Italy, and they go to some other mansion and the moors or whatever, and immediately they see this headless ghost who is Marcello Mastriani holding his, his own head under his arm. And he, he basically just makes a joke about like, oh, I see the ghost is like really interested in you, and it's just like him smiling and staring at her ass. <laughs> And, like, that's it. That's the end of the movie. So, you know, great film. And that's how she ended the 60s. With an ass joke. For a lesser talent, that that might have indicated the end of her career, but she still had quite a few good films ahead of her after this. Sunflower in 1970, and, well, Man of La Mancha was kind of a bomb, but at least it was a high-profile bomb. And like Cassandra Crossing, a special day in 1977 was one of her special day is great most acclaimed roles. So she was winding down, but she definitely wasn't out at this point. She just took a little break for a little while. Well, this was definitely interesting to watch to to split these movies up because for me it felt like this was a tale of two Sophias. It was really I I felt like I got all the dour and strange movies that were trying to really hard to be the thinking man's movie whereas I feel like you got a little bit more of the fun lighthearted films about her being a hooker with a heart of gold. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean I took the Desicas that you had already seen and and she's she's at her best. She's at her most fun in those. Like Yesterday, Today and Tomorrow and movies like that or you know, those are the feel around movies you want to see. What I think is interesting is that some of her not particularly interesting Hollywood roles like uh, Heller and Pink Tights or Breath of Scandal or Started in Naples, they're not great movies, but she really sort of gets to show off her talent in those movies, which surprised me. It was some of these later ones where they didn't seem to know what to do with Sophia Loren, where she really like is either not very interesting at all or just lousy movies and she doesn't get to do much of anything in them that's my takeaway from looking at her 60s career yeah it kind of felt like what as the 60s progressed and women were fighting to do more 
Hollywood didn't know what to do with her because maybe she would have been too powerful if she was fully liberated. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I feel like she's always playing these characters who are sort of self-liberating and self-empowering, but they're always in these crappy positions. You know, I'm a hooker, but I own it kind of stuff, which is interesting. And and she does, she plays really well and she certainly plays with grace. It's never, it never feels cheap, but like, God forbid she was, you know, instead of a mother or like in some way sent back to the kitchen or the the bed, you know what I mean? Like there seems to be this fear of, of actually letting her like Lady L, like she should have carried that entire film. And I don't know if it was just the limitation of men not being able to see past her curves. I don't know if this was Ponty trying to position her as a starlet, which is something she was never interested in. She was never really, I mean, she was around all of these people, but she was never fully involved in the drama of all of these people. She's someone who said that she felt like more of an observer than, than a participant in that sort of Hollywood craziness. And also claims to love solitude and claims to enjoy not being around people (laughs) on her own. So I think it's sort of strange that she ended up in these roles. I don't know if, again, too, that she just was, hey, you know, Vittorio Gassman's in this and it's Italian. Yeah, I'll do it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, that's a good enough excuse to do a film. Unfortunately, the film's not very good, but uh, she sure gave it her best. I mean... You definitely can't watch these and, and come away with it thinking that Sophia is just, just TNA, you know what I mean? Like, she's definitely very talented and super charming in, in a way that you really don't see in a lot of actresses in general. I feel like all of the women who are upheld as glorious actresses are always fairly severe, or at least play these sort of dramatic roles, which is what she was acknowledged for. But I think her comedic roles are really where she shines the most. Yeah, I guess it was just hard to sort of reconcile the fact that she was such a sex bomb and she could act. People didn't know what to do with her. Right. I mean, like, her career wound down in the the late 60s, not because she was losing her looks or anything. It was sort of her peak of beauty at the end of the 60s, like more than a miracle. She's stunning, but, uh, you know, so it wasn't her looks that was causing uh, her decline. I think it was just the fact that there just weren't enough roles for her like she her, she was too talented to take the crap that was being thrown her way in general is, is my impression of, of what happened yeah it's a it's a bummer mm-hmm. but i mean again for at least the the stuff that she was given with all of its asterisks <laughs> she's a joy to watch well thank you for for joining us on this odyssey of loren and maybe you'll watch at least a couple of these. And we're definitely going to end up talking about these movies again at some point. I mean, we got to talk about Altona. Yeah, so some of these movies we gave a, a short shrift to, well, you'll see them popping up again when we can fit them in, especially the ones that we particularly liked. Five Miles to Midnight, I'd like there to be an excuse to, to make you watch that one. But for now, we will end on how about that really weird stripper song from yesterday today tomorrow with mastriani howling like a dog (laughs) coming right up
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.